your political, social and political sort of place and function as derived or deduced from the, the community as being the ultimate. The future to be realized, like that can can even slip into this sometimes. Yo, what's going down everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we are kind of doing, it's like spiritually related to uh, the last chat that we did, I guess, in some ways. Yeah, Troy? Is that what we have said? It's kind of a spiritual part too? Yeah, we're doing the transcendental move where you you take the given and then you go back into the theoretical to see what Mm. the theoretical structure must be given what the givens were. There we go. Perfect. We're going to be talking about a book by Paul Livingston called The Politics of Logic. Uh, Let me get the subtitle here. What is it? Subtitle is Badu, Wittgenstein, and the Consequences of Formalism. And um, I think I had mentioned this previously, but I had the pleasure of actually hanging out with Paul for a week in Italy a few years back uh, at this summer school in Grado, Italy. And it was Paul Livingston, Sergei Prozorov, Grand Priest, and then the Grand Poobah of them all was Giorgio Agamben. And we basically fucking just got to nerd out for 10 days on the coast of Italy and talk about philosophy in the morning and then the afternoon and then in the evening eat pizza, pasta, drink wine and beer and everyone was like young like early career researchers or um, or like kind of PhD or I guess maybe there were probably some master's degree students there as well but um, everyone was like early career stage researchers and so we just got to kind of hang out with a gombin and drink wine or hang out with Paul Livingston and and, and Praz and, and drink wine I call him Praz now by the way because he's been on our podcast <laughs> and because I hung and because I hung out with him for a week in Italy so I hope he doesn't mind that um, but uh, we got to hang out and uh, and just kind of like chat shit so um, that was when I was introduced to Paul and his work and I know that he's been someone who's been on your radar for a while as well is that right yeah uh, definitely back in the days when I was also doing more continentally focused philosophy Um Interested in, in that uh, that crew that tries to bridge the gap between analytic and continental uh, thinking in a unique way, which involves, you know, um, Bajou, but also Mayasu and uh, the rest of the speculative realism crowd, as well as uh, Livingston. Mm. Yeah, and Livingston is kind of in the new realism's world, right? Is that is that about right? A kind of a new realist, not speculative realist, but something something in that in that frame. Cause I know Marcus Gabriel engages with him and um, yeah. Would, can you classify him within the new realisms? Yeah. I mean, you might, might know better than I have cause I haven't been in that world in quite a while, but I do know, wasn't someone trying to coin the, um, the term continental realism to capture all the different sort of strands that are in this wake of rejecting. I mean, what they sometimes call like post-Kantian uh, non anti-realism or something like that. Um, mm. Mm. But more like 20th century anti-realism, linguistic turn, Mm. all that kind of stuff, you know, like a a wholesale rejection of that whole strain of thinking in continental philosophy. Right. Yeah, that I mean, I guess that works. I kind of 
I have a soft spot for that stuff, uh, actually, even though it doesn't bear directly upon my research interests um, explicitly. I think it's always there kind of in the background, and whenever I get to revisit a text like this, it kind of um, reignites my interest in that in that literature. So, um, so we're going to get into that, and for those of you who are less philosophically uh, inclined and you appreciate more of like the philosophical and more kind of um, the more explicit kind of cultural or, and social related issues. We'll try to bridge the gap between this theoretical text and what he's doing there and how it relates to the stuff that we talked about last week about like uh, policing, um, policing what, what is sayable and um, how it is that certain, let's say, formal structures can turn into political structures that can then wield their power over um, what you can say, how you can act, how you can think, etc. So that'll be in the main segment coming up very shortly. Yeah, yeah. We do want to mention also that if you want to support us in a tangible way, you can do so at patreon.com slash dawn. Get access to goodies there as well as access to our community discord where the parliament communicates. And uh, yeah, patreon.com slash dawn. And we don't have Zizek or somebody really cool uh, like, you know, pleading for money but um <laughs> but but if we could get somebody no i'm kidding who would we get who would be like our dream get uh gosh i mean it's like a flavor of the a flavor of the month i think for us right like i mean the get would be like you know hegel right like that would be the get <laughs> could we just like could we just like have a medium contact contact him from the grave and that would be the get of all gets you know and then people would have to throw us their money because that's just fucking insane <laughs> <laughs> i like that you know you know that movie um the trotsky with uh, jay baruchel have you no, seen that i don't know it no oh my god dude this is such a great movie it's called the trotsky um if you've okay. ever seen the, the the canadian show letter kenny which is a fantastic yeah show, yeah by the yeah way. Yeah, the the guy who um, one of the two creators of that show was the guy who who did the Trotsky and Jerry Baruchel, who I really love, is in it, and he plays this high school kid in Canada who believes he's the reincarnation of Leon Trotsky, and he tries to he tries to um, form a union in his high school uh, of students. It's yeah. it's very funny. It's very funny and smart. Um, yeah, great movie. Definitely should watch it, especially if you have any interest at all in in like left wing <laughs> politics. Uh, but anyway, I was it, thinking like we could just find yeah. some like some kid who who believes he's the reincarnation of Hegel, and there yeah, we go. Okay, we'll put a call out. If you are the reincarnation of Hegel, please add us <laughs> owls underscore at underscore dawn or email us owls at dawnpodcast at gmail dot com. Thank you very much. We would love to have you record an intro pleading for money for us. <laughs> All right. So before we get into talking about politics of logic, we got to do what we always do the beginning of the episode and that's where we talk about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week it's the shitty minute so austin what's got you down this week um so i'm not really like mad at the person but i'm gonna use You're it never as mad. an opportunity <laughs> yeah i i can get annoyed though i can get grumpy um but so i'm not really mad at this person in uh it's, so it's, i'm not really gonna spend too much time talking about them but it's more about what their recent article indicates but uh there's a film reviewer and and then jacobin in general does like film reviews sometimes that i think are less than stellar but they basically put out 
an article that was like end of year 2023 movie reviews and uh, it was kind of like ah 23 was a dismal year for film but here are like three standouts that were cool and um and they they got pretty roasted online from what i saw from people who were cinephiles and movie critics and and whatnot and basically it i guess I guess my my shitty minute is like one, and then there was like a lot of talk about like why are leftist critics so bad at uh, at movie reviews, right? And 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 I do wonder if there is like this weird, if there's this weird felt need from certain people who identify as like hardcore, like I am on the left, and it becomes so much of their makeup that it becomes a prism through which they view the world, right? Which isn't necessarily a horrible thing, but. I think what happens a lot of times when it comes to that orientation to the world reviewing movies is that the movie becomes instrumental to the purpose of whatever kind of the leftist impulse is that that is most driving that particular critic, right? And mm. and I think that oftentimes really leads to a real shallow conception, it, it, not even shallow conception. It, it like limits the possibilities of that person being able to to receive the the artistic expression or to receive the landscape even of possibilities of what's out there um and and it really i think i don't know it's like a it's like a pre-fronting like it front loads in a negative way it like stifles as like some sort of um prior prior stopgap that prevents a real like not just appreciation for cinema which is going to go to my part two but more like more like what can you get from certain artistic expressions and i i actually have an essay that is is underformed and it was part of a, a larger piece of writing that i ended up scrapping and, and going in a completely different direction on but it was basically like looking at the difference between like Badiou has this conception of proletarian art and um the difference between like bourgeois art and proletarian art and and uh he talks about it with reference to cinema and I kind of talk about it with reference to Sartre, who not a lot of people talk about Sartre in his conception of, of cinema, but he was like a big lover of American cinema. And the reason was because the figures in American cinema, especially in the 40s, were like these larger-than-life kind of grandiose figures that really fit well with his existentialist concerns. And, you know, the, the figures in French cinema at the time he just thought were really kind of like passive and flaccid, I think. And... Um, and and I, and I think there's something when you kind of like read Bedou and when you read Sartre and you start thinking about, well, these are people who, especially as Sartre like later in his life, becomes more committed to revolutionary liberatory politics, yet still have an appreciation for the possibilities within cinema, even if it's a cinematic artifact that isn't like the Battle of Algier, right? That isn't like the young Karl Marx, right? That, 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 that the content itself doesn't have to be like preachy or... Um, even like ideologically pure to your principles, but that even formalistically, like stylistically, there's something that can be extremely valuable and liberatory within cinema at a popular level and, of course, then more at the independent and avant-garde level as well. Um, and so I just want to like encourage people to to be open to artistic expression. Um, in particular, I'm talking about cinema here, but be open to it not because it always has to like have a a surface level in terms of content, um, like mapping of the ideas that we would like to espouse in the world, but that even, you know, watching the stupid shit 
that you can still find some important real shit in that, you know? And then this goes to like my second point, which is that, and I think more than anything, like the thing that drives me crazy is is when people, and I, and I, I think they're related, but I'm not entirely sure. It, it's like when you reduce content and cinema to something that you like, that's where I think the problem comes in. Because it's like, hmm. if, you're, if you identify as X, let's say I identify as a, as, as a Marxist or something like that, and I'm only going to judge things based on the things that I like, it's most likely that I'm going to be judging things based on the things that kind of reaffirm or that re-legitimate the identity that makes me feel good, right? Which is like Marxist ideas and Marxist principles and Marxist groups and Marxist art or whatever. And it's going to be a lot harder to find things that I like that might be outside of that really narrowly defined paradigm, right? And then when I do, it's probably because they somehow have an overlap, you know, some sort of like Venn diagram sort of thing where it's like, oh, well, I like that thing insofar as it made me feel good in these ways because I like these things and it espoused those things, therefore I like it, right? And then I didn't like these other things. And and I and I know that that's, that's also part like how we think about things. But my point is, is that I think when you reduce like the consumption of cinema in particular to just things that you like, I think you really miss out on what the possibility is of, of exploring things that could be more beneficial to you than just like if you like it or not. Like, I don't know if I like Belatar's The Turin Horse, but like, <laughs> I feel like I need it, you know? <laughs> Like, and maybe this is like a, maybe I'm getting like very sort of mill here with like a higher and lower pleasures sort of thing. But it it feels like it's beyond just like, do I like it? Like, I, I always am like hesitant when someone's like, oh, like, what did you think of the film? Because I know that what they might be often expecting is, did I like it or not? Whereas like, to me, that's like the the least interesting thing I can say about a film is whether I liked it or not. You know, it's, it, there's there's so much more to say about something beyond just if it made me feel good or if I had some sort of positive affect pertaining to it, you know? So I don't know. That's Does that make sense? Do you see how those two things might relate, first of all? And then secondly, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, this is a huge hobby horse for me, so I'm glad that you brought it up. We could talk about this for hours, I feel like. But there's, you know, I think one thing you're talking about is there's a kind of uh, and this is true on the left, but I think it's also kind of mirrored on specifically like the the um, conservative evangelical segment that we sort of oh, grew yeah. up in, yeah, where yeah, you, you yeah. have this very narrow frame for understanding culture. And so everything gets uh, refracted through that prism. And then it, it, it leads to a very narrow way of appreciating things. And ultimately, I think it comes down to a kind of epistemological arrogance, or maybe even epistemological fear that... Um, you have things basically figured out. And so you don't need to be shocked into thought with anything new. And mm, mm. that kind of closeness to new experience and to new thought is, it's just an impoverished way of, of appreciating art. I mean, really life in general, but I think especially arts who one of arts, you know, positive functions is that it can, it can like teach us, right. And it can change us and alter us. And that doesn't happen when you force, um, you know, artistic experience um, and thought into a very narrow frame and don't let anything get outside of it, right? Uh, that sort of, mm. that act sort of uh, prevents um, art from changing you. You're sort of like coming at it with a shield up, right? Like, I'm not going to let this do certain things to me because I don't want that to happen. I don't want to change. Um, yeah, and that's just, that's just, I think, kind of antithetical just to the, the function of art and human life in general. But, you know, in mm. addition to that, I think that's really important. In addition to that, I also 
and thinking more and more that part of why this happens specifically on the left, I think, is that there's this sense on the left, I don't think it's necessarily explicit, it's, it's implicit, that politics is divorced from the rest of life yeah. in a way. So you, if you're thinking about things politically, you have to sort of interpret the rest of life through that political lens for it to make sense, rather than thinking that politics mm -hmm. integrates, um, or your political thinking integrates seamlessly um, into the other areas of life that matter, like the other practices and values and morality and um, relationships and just you know things you do on the side, hobbies, um, work, all these kinds of things. And this, I think, happens whenever you make politics academic because it gets cordoned off from everything else. Just like whenever you make any academic discipline, you know, cordoned off from everything else, this kind of phenomenon yeah. happens. And so, like, we were talking about watching Godzilla Minus One. And there's nothing directly <laughs> political about that film, right? But there is something kind of, and it's naively so, but it's naively very optimistic about the human spirit. Right. And about the value of, of individual human life and about the ability of individuals to work together in community without strict hierarchies. Right. And get amazing things done. Conquer, you know, like seemingly unstoppable, um, like, uh, you know, antagonisms or whatever from from afflicting society. So that and, to me and is there is something and there is something kind of political about the idea that, oh, you know, the the. The Japanese Empire was did not care about life. They didn't prioritize life first. We were just like inputs serving the institutional purpose. And then this is about like a reclamation of like the value of a regime of life, which is beautiful. Or of people, better to put than just life. Y right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, of people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that to me is political. And that's sort of totally. part of the moral vision that makes something like socialism or whatever the right kind of political vision because it fits or integrates into a broader vision of morality and value and human life mm. that I think we actually know better than we know the politics. I mean, the politics is the hard part, right? We have to sort of figure that stuff out and it should integrate well into the other parts of life that we have a better understanding of about things that matter in our life, right? Mm. Um, like I'm much more sure about the relationships that I have in my life that those things matter than I do about the right political vision for society, right? And sometimes it seems like leftists are the opposite. <laughs> They're very sure about uh, how society, polit how political economy should be ordered. But you know, the rest of the life, that's that's the, that stuff's like impossible, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, and, um, I think when you when you see politics in that grander vision, or is integrated into that grander vision of human life, then you can see. Um, like mm -hmm. value, even if you're sort of, you know, focused a little bit more on the, on the politics side in all sorts of things that are not explicitly political. And you don't have to like then talk about their politics, right? You don't have to talk about the politics of Godzilla minus one and write a whole essay about it as if that's the most important thing, right? But you can talk about the, the broader vision of human life and that, you know, that's going to fit well um, and your broader understanding of, of why your political vision matters too. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, there's a there's a reductiveness there that oftentimes characterizes the tendency that I think we're kind of being critical of. And I think there's also another reductiveness that isn't just a political reductiveness, but there's a sort of economic reductiveness, I think, that when you reduce everything to just if you like it or not, you're in a lot of ways 
and, and it makes it seem, it's not like you're allowing, but you, I, I, I think that that's just a product of a certain type of consumerist rationality, a, a consumerist subjectivity. And I think we need to do everything we can to fucking war against that as it, as it tries to engrip us, you know, which it does. It, it, it tries to fucking sink its teeth in and put its talons into our souls and, and convert us into little deputies for its own furtherance through these these enticements and seductions. And I think and I think one of the activities of like liberation or revolution or of um, freedom or of 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 like human flourishing is finding those points at which we can resist the tendency of those constraints to completely overdetermine how it is we think, act, and feel. And that seems to me to be like one of the indications where when everything is measured by if you like it or not, you know, which is like there's, you know, there's that online thing. It's like you got to just let people like things. Like, yeah, it's a good thing that people like like things. But my concern is that what you basically end up getting is this, this, this proliferation of like consumer groups. And those groups are just simply coalesced in Sartre's terms serially they're institutionalized by some sort of like external conditioning based on like their their consumption habits and that isn't that isn't a great thing in itself as an end right that I, I that I don't think we should be reinforcing I think we should recognize that it's going to fucking happen and we're a part of it right but at the same time we gotta I think maybe this is my row kind of my romantic uh French sensibility coming out, we have to like war against those constraints wherever we feel them impinging upon ourselves. Yeah, dude. I mean, and you're preaching to the choir. Like it's that, that consumer division is of art is so parasitic on social life generally. I mean, you think about um, that infects not just artistic world, but like uh, all the, um, all the other areas in life that aren't supposed to be uh, affected by sort of a market logic. Right. Education students largely see themselves as customers rather than as individuals who are developing into people, right? And being willing to sort of have their mm. thoughts and beliefs challenged and be introduced to new things they've never heard or seen before, and sometimes be put in uncomfortable places. Like relationships are this way. People increasingly see relationships as a kind of transaction, and then when you're not getting the side of the deal that you want, then you're out, right? Um, the whole idea that like um, emotional labor no longer means emotions you're required to express in your labor, but now means anytime you have to hear your friend complain about something, <laughs> you're being emotionally <laughs> exploited by them is sort of, I think, par- paradigmatic of this feature, right? Like that's no, that's just like doing things in friendships that don't make you necessarily immediately happy or not immediately pleasurable. That's part of being a friend, right? Yes. Did you see that tweet that went viral? I don't know who it was and we don't need to shit on him too much, but it was like, someone was like, was like in a relationship, like you're not owed a text back and a this and a that. And it was just like basic, like (laughs) reciprocal, reciprocal, like human things. And they were talking about like in a romantic relationship too. It's like, they don't owe you anything. You're not entitled to receive that. And I was like, 
I was like, I, I get the spirit of what you're trying to say. Like, there is a sense in which people are entitled, which is also an issue, that there is an entitlement that's like, I demand that you respond back to me, which is also a problem. But it, it, what it felt like they, and I can't remember what they were responding to, but what it felt like they were saying was kind of like, and it made me think of like this, this um, evangelical idea that's like, well, God doesn't force you to love him, but when your heart is so regenerated, you will want to obey him. That, it kind of made me feel like that's what this person was saying, that it's like, but when you're in a relationship, like, there's no contractual obligations. There's no, like, you do this, therefore I will do this kind of compromise thing, which is definitely a big part of human relationships. But it felt like they were kind of like, you just do stuff because you want to do it. And if you don't want to do it, then you just don't want to do it. And that's what it felt like they were they were insinuating. And maybe I got the tweet wrong. I don't know. But regardless, I do I do see that sometimes. It's kind of like, well, when your heart is just so regenerated that you're overcome with passion, you will want to serve your lover. And yeah, that's fantastic. And you will do that. And that is great. But then the problem is that is that sometimes that passion dwindles a little bit. And I don't mean forever, but like you might have yeah. a bad day, <laughs> you, you, you know? And, and yeah, yeah, it does change over time. But also you might have a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. And guess what? Commitment means being there still through those times, you know? So you can't just like, you can't reduce everything to whether you want to do it and you feel the inspiration to do it. This is like this is like I think maybe the most important like piece of practical moral theory that that exists. It's that obligation and the passions are not at odds. <laughs> I think because mm. so much of like 20th century uh, moral theory has been a rejection of of Kantian moral thinking in favor of more like a motive thinking about morality. That there's this assumption mm. that that they're opposites in a certain way. Um, and they're just not like, it's really important that your sense of obligation to your loved ones is integrated with your passion for them. Cause what happens when you lack one or the other, if you have the obligation, but not the passion, then it's not really a relationship anymore. Right. Mm. It's really more of like a pure duty or something like that. And everyone knows that that's not really a relationship. Right. But then what people don't feel to realize is that what about if you have the passion without the obligation? They're not integrated together, right? Well, then you have things like obsession. That's mm. passion without the obligation. And that's not really love either, right? No, love selfish. is, yeah, it's entirely selfish. Mm. It sees the person merely as an object, right? Mm. Of passion. Mm -mm. So what's really mm. important, what love is really, is the integration of the obligation or the sense of responsibility and the passion, right? And they sometimes are not always going to be, you know, given that passion waxes and wanes, um, sometimes obligation has to carry the weight, but it can't carry all of the weight all the time. Then it's not really a relationship anymore, right? So love really is the, the integration of those two things in harmony. This is great. You should write a piece on this for like Aeon magazine or something like that. You know, the integration of obligation and passion. Because that's beautiful because they're... they're I know we're going long here, uh, this shitty half hour now, um, but <laughs> there's been a lot of commentary on the kind of like emotional turn, I think it's sometimes being termed, and and I think one of the things that we can think about is is how there is like a sort of like therapization of society and an emotionalization of society that makes me, that I think a lot of people are trying to diagnose and work through and think about, and there's some good things about it, of course, right, where people are being more enabled to explore things that maybe previous generations were less inclined to allow for. But then maybe there's a pitfall of that. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that 
here's just like the kind of maybe extreme version of this or, or an extreme version of it, is that politically it can actually be wielded for control. So this is one of the things that Michelle Fair's research actually has taught me is that from like the shift from like, you know, post-Reagan into third wave uh, democratic institutions, you know, with, with like Clinton, Blair, and Schroeder in Germany in the 90s, what you get is this, it's no longer about like punishing um, unions and the unemployed and things like that because they're like special interest groups or price gouging or are getting, you know, special breaks and manipulating power relations because of, you know, their embeddedness with the government. But then what happens is this turns towards like trying to get people to be weaned off of the welfare state because they're addicted but if we can convince them that, hey, you can you can reclaim an entrepreneurial spirit or you can reclaim a sense of pride over yourself and, and we can stimulate your pursuit of self-esteem, um, then you won't need the government handouts. Then you won't need the nanny state, you know, because you'll be able to nurture your own and you'll be responsible for your own emotional, like, welfare and well-being. And you you hear this, like, Clinton explicitly uses this language about people that are on welfare. He's not punishing them and mm-hmm. berating them. He's speaking, he's kind of, like, pitying them, you know, with, like, this paternalistic, like, hey, we're just, we're going to convince them that they don't need us anymore. And we're going to invest in their, their, their abilities to take care of them and love themselves kind of shit, you know. Um, and that's like the, that's like a politicization of this tendency, which is really nefarious. Yeah, it's super nefarious and hides the fact that um, that kind of stigma on welfare programs only exists when those programs are means tested, when they're universal programs mm. that everybody shares, then they're not stigmatized anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great way to, with one hand, you distract the public because you're like, oh, look, we care about people and we want them to, you know, become autonomous agents or whatever. And on the other hand, you're just dismantling the, you know, the public good. Yeah, it's, it's maybe one of the small silver linings to the, the Trump era that the compassionate conservative doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> like no one, almost no one really uses that kind of talking point anymore. It's just straight up vitriol. So at least it's mask off. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have no idea uh, how to encapsulate that shitty minute, but I will say this as a button for my own uh, selfish passions. uh, What I want is it would make me feel good, and I would like, Troy, if you would write a piece in a in a in a like philosophical magazine on the integration of obligation and passion and if you out there in uh the parliamentary owls at dawn world would also like to see this please flood us with your comments <laughs> and maybe we can convince him he's busy and he's writing all kinds of stuff we get it but come on man give us something give us something like that because i just want to read more about that maybe we co-author something if you uh if you need a prompting yeah, I mean it's 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 in, it's in my uh, my document of of essay ideas. I have a rough outline of something like that. So, oh, do you? At some point, I, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think it's like my my favorite sort of you know genre is like interpersonal ethics, and that's right that's right in that that uh, wheelhouse. So, at some point, I will definitely write on that topic. I'm I'm super well, interested. God damn in it! you the world needs it. You're, this is an <laughs> obligation now. This isn't just a. This is an obligation. I always feel weird, like um, right. there's Should some we, of my uh, favorite essays, or just <laughs> really quick, some of my favorite essays ever are kind of in that same vein of talking about interpersonal ethics and ethics of love and stuff like that. Um, mm. And it always feels like if you write that paper, don't the people in your life 
going to look askew at you, even though it's like, <laughs> yeah, this is like an ideal conception. Certainly I don't like reach that. Right. But it does feel a bit like if you're going to write in an area like, like that, um, you better, you better not be a shit person. <laughs> right? This it's so funny. Sean, Sean often talks about, you made this point a few, I don't know, five, six, seven episodes ago in a shitty minute. We were talking about like, you mentioned how there's studies that professors of ethics aren't ethical people <laughs> and how like maybe they're even and we were talking about how like they're maybe they're driven to ethical like moral philosophy because they're trying to like like overcorrect for their own shittiness or something like that and it just made me yeah. think about that this recent this outing of peter singer and like his his like his wielding of his power for like sexual favors or something like that and how he's got this harem that he's kind of always collected and and like you know kind of engaged in an economic exchange of of whatever like you you give me sex and i'll kind of co-author a paper with you sort of thing or whatever and he's you know an ethical philosopher so it's just kind of is making me think that uh essentially what it's doing is it's trying to hold yourself account publicly you're like a pastor troy that's what it is. If you write a paper like that, you write a paper like that, you're basically saying, hey, flock, um, I fuck up too, and I'm not perfect, but I've been inspired by the Spirit, and I'm holding these ideas out there in the public so that you will hold me accountable, right? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, uh, the hermeneutic that says everything that we, that we do and think in our adult life goes back to our first three years of college, like that's... <laughs> that's uh, it's batting a thousand right now. <laughs> oh no! Oh shit! Ah man, it makes me want to write like a series of journals to think about like what, how does that relate to me, and then to go back and just read. You know what though? I was I was I was in the bathroom the other day and I was talking with with Sean about this and I. I was I had this like moment of like thought where you know how people are like what radicalized you what radicalized you and I was like fuck my first year of junior college right because I'm for people <laughs> out there listening if you're I was a com- I was a community college kid right I did not do well in high school at all um, and so when I went back to school I had to go to community college first to get some credits and basically just learn how to fucking read and study and think and shit like that right um, in an, in an academic sense and so like. Um, I had a teacher that was teaching American history, and I will never forget when she was talking about the Declaration of Independence, and she was basically like, this is a document that is basically propaganda. I had never thought that. I was like, the Declaration of Independence is a list of grievances that are facts. And she was like, well, let's go over these list of grievances. And she kind of, I remember we listed them, and she's like, a lot of these claims are quite inflated, and this is really a rhetorical device to to galvanize support for the independence movement. And that was like, the, the fucking scales fell off my eyes and I started for the first <laughs> time thinking about like, oh my God, the very foundational documents upon which this country is is founded, like they were pieces of political propaganda. And I was like, fuck, you know? Yeah, dude, I mean, I'm, the same exact event happened for me, I think my senior year of high school when my super conservative history teacher uh, AP U.S. history teacher assigned us to read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States in I order to then re- me refute all of the points. <laughs> yeah, he did it in order to, you know, very yeah. arrogantly refute every what point. What were they thinking? <laughs> I know, right? Definitely backfired. <laughs> and not because, you know, that, that book I think is kind of infamously not the most historically accurate text. But again, that's not the point, right? The point is sort of um, the frame through which the book is told as a people's mm. history and, and that sort of makes you think well every other 
way that I've studied history or thought of history has been antithetical to this. That's really interesting. I never thought that there was a sort of choice made in how the history was presented mm. and that this is a very different way and tell, mm. it tells you a lot more about what actually uh, has occurred in history. So yeah, uh, that was definitely the scaling scales falling off the eyes uh, moment for me. Interesting how similar Damn, that they were, right? Recontextualizing something you already have yeah, history. a whole lot about. Yeah. 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 American history too, right? Well, but that's, I think that's where a lot of the the kind of like quote-unquote radicalization comes from is like the thing Mm -hmm. that you just assume as being water, right? Like that you just swim and you breathe and you think it when you start to realize, oh, actually like, no, you've been put in a fish tank, right? It's not just reality as such. You've been placed into that. And guess what? There's life outside of that fish tank and you actually have legs. You're not a fish. Um, You have gills, but you also have lungs and you can, it's it's a tortured metaphor. Sorry, I'm done. But you get the point. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, all right, sick. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Paul Livingston um, a little bit here. Let's let's get into this main segment. Um, so you had never read this before. I was pretty familiar with this text previously. I've referred to it in a lot of works that I've published. I I keep re- re- recurring to it. Um, I mean, I keep I keep returning to it, um, and the ideas recur in my mind over and over and over again, very often. Um, how do you want to set this up? Do you want to kind of set up like what it is that he is primarily going to be exploring? Or do you want to talk about that section, the four orientations of thought? Like what's the best way for you, since you were kind of newer to this, that would like help the people listening to, I think, get get a foothold on this before we start delving into it? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that I have like a um, determinative um, reason either way. But I mean, I do think it'd be most interesting to kind of jump into the four orientations of thought section, since that seems to be the meatiest portion of it, since it seems to be the innovation, that fourth orientation seems to be the innovation that Livingston's trying to uh, extrapolate here, right? Yeah, and maybe the way I kind of see this text, and he does talk about this early on, um, is that he is investigating what he calls forms of life. It's part of the subtitle, right? And Mm. so in the introduction, quite early on, on page four, he says, okay, so this book is basically like about investigating formalisms. So what are forms and what is formalism, right? So he defines it. He says, um, there are, of course, many available definitions of forms and formalism, he said. But here, I follow the suggestion of Georg Cantor in the inaugural definition of mathematical set theory, one of the most important developments of formalism in our time. And he basically says that he defines form in terms of a set um, that helps him, uh, in his book, set his argument. And here's a quote that he quotes from Cantor. And uh, he says, By a manifold or set, I understand in general any many which can be thought of as one. That is, every totality of definite elements which can be united to a whole through a law. By this, I believe, I have defined something related to the Platonic eidos or idea. And then um, Livingston says, Cantor here recognizes the relevance of his new concept of the set to the ancient problem that most vexed Plato in accounting for the idea as the one that unites the many of its participants. So I think for me that's really important because these four orientations of thought or what I think he could even call, and I think he does in the longer definition, it's the four orientations of the relation between thought and being that they're understood in terms of them being formalisms. So Livingston basically says that there are primarily like, or this is a, a way that we can take up 
a large swath of thinking by looking at how there are four different approaches or orientations to how it is that people understand the relationship of thought to being. And they're all formalisms, or they're working from within a sort of formalist paradigm. And then um, he talks about some of the implications of that, some of which are more maybe we might say conservative in the political sense. Because remember, the book is called Politics of Logic. So there is something about like the political and social implications that come from this theoretical framing. And then there are other formalisms that um, might be more quote-unquote liberatory, which he has two that he explores. So there are two that are uh, that are kind of more uh, what we might call like conservative or restrictive formalisms, maybe. And then there are two that are more in kind of like the liberatory end. Um, does that, do you think that, do you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I was just thinking, you know, to, to help make this a little bit more concrete for listeners who maybe don't have as much of a uh, academic philosophical background. What what's kind of being um, referenced here is the what's called the classic problem of the one and the many, um, and one way of kind of getting at how this problem surfaces even just in everyday thought for every individual, not just in philosophy seminars, is to think about like you know think about four objects that are in front of you, all of which are green, right? It's like a leaf and a green apple and a lime. And, um, I don't know, a green shirt or whatever, right? Uh, there's a sense in which there are, are many different instances of green there. There's also a sense in which there is one instance or there's one green, one color green manifest in all of them. So the way that the, the philosophical problem is introduced is to say, well, how is it that there are, are four objects, four concrete objects that instantiate the color green? Uh, but there's one color green amongst them all. There's there's a sense in which there is one, and there's a sense in which there's many. And it seems like thought is able to access this oneness that's not actually concrete. It's an abstract thing, right? It's not spatio-temporal. Um, it's not measured by things like space-time. It's instead abstract and doesn't seem to exist in a way that's tangible mm. or can be touched mm-hmm. um, or heard. Instead, it, it's thought, right? And so it seems like thought has access to this this level of abstraction that con- the concrete senses are not able to access uh, directly. And then those things, you know, get integrated together so we can think about the one and the many at the same time, right? So this is just generally gets at the idea that thought has this unique characteristic to it that seems special enabled being able to access this abstract oneness amongst many instantiations. So that's kind of one just kind of basic way in which you can get a pathway into thinking where this problem might arise. Yeah, and then is there, there's a sense in which, right, it's like, how do we think about the one in a way that doesn't just reduce it to maybe like an arbitrary closing of the formal set? So you could look at like, I'm going to take a different set of four green things, but let's say a green leaf, a green patch of grass, um... Uh, well, well, maybe a, a group of people wearing green shirts and a green apple. And you might look at it and you might be like, oh, well, they're all contained in this one area. And that area is called, you know, the park. Um, so therefore, like you've created uh, like a single form of enclosure that encapsulates all those many within that one. And you kind of like reduced it and you said, well, that's what the that's what defines those four things. Those four elements are defined um, by their relation to them being in the park, and that's kind of like solidified and canonized, right? 
And what that does is that kind of like restricts the other possibilities of how it is that they could be formalized or how they could be defined or how we could understand the relations between those things. Yeah? Yeah. Thought has the, the ability not just to sort of represent um, oneness, but even do some like direct activity on things to, yeah. in your words, to enclose them, right? So yeah, thought has all these functions that it can perform that seem to need some explanation because they don't seem like they necessarily, it seems like it's, it's a kind of activity that thought does and not merely like a passive representation of reality in sort of like the empiricist tradition would, would normally think where you're just passively receiving stimuli and the, and the forms of those things are also passively received, right? If, if you know, Kant taught us, taught us anything, it's the mind's doing some, seems to be doing some work here um, mm. in, in applying forms such that reality can be experienced in a particular way. And, you know, Kant thought that it happened um, in thought, but I think one mm-hmm. thing we can we can add to that is it also happens in perception, even before thought even happens, right? So even just experience in general has these kind of formal aspects to it. And we were just talking about seeing an apple and a grass and a shirt and um, that you can just merely experience those things. And a lot of those categories, uh, those thought-based categories that, you know, come into play even before um, like pure cognition comes into the scene. Mm, yeah, I, I do want to say it's interesting too. Um, that's that's kind of like the like the precognitive experience, and then there's like the political activity of it. And this is something that actually interests someone that I know we are going to be talking about hopefully in the near future. But Kojin Karatani talks about in his um, collection of essays, uh, "Architecture as Metaphor." He talks about how. Um, 20th century formalisms are essentially characterized by um, an activity of like foreclosing. They're characterized by the verb to be. And he talks about that what it does is it's essentially an activity. And he really goes back to Socrates and Plato uh, in a critical sense and talks about how the activity, which then relates to what, what Livingston was just talking about here about the kind of like political. I'm sorry, the platonic um, concern with the relationship between the one and the many, and that, of course, in the quote from Cantor, where he's talking about how this this idea of formalism pertains to the platonic notion of, like, idos or idea. For Karatani, he takes this idea that what happens is, is this, like, activity of, of selection and closure that forecloses becoming in the verb to be. So when something that is otherwise becoming becomes, like, maybe in pre-secretal, pre-Socratic atomistic philosophy that emphasizes maybe more of a conception of becoming what you get with the platonic turn is is a shift towards like things being or becoming static or maybe essentialized um, idealized in in the platonic sense um, and so that there's something about an activity of like selection and closure uh, that defines formalism whether or not we accept that definition is of course uh, another another thing because there might be and I think that Livingston wouldn't entirely, and I think that's actually part of the project here. But there's something I think interesting in that, like that, like conscious activity. So you were talking about like the pre-conscious organization. Um, Karatani focuses more on kind of like the the rational, maybe even social and political implications that come from formalist rationality. Right. Yeah. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think if to, to go off on that or to maybe we should we should mention really briefly that the the sort of innovation here and it seems like Livingston's following Bajou right and saying that like the 
all this kind of stuff has been talked about through all the philosophical history. There's a reason why everyone ends up going back to Socrates and Plato um, and Aristotle <laughs> yeah. to talk about this stuff. It's the, in some ways, like the foundational philosophical problem of understanding reality or metaphysics. Um, but the the major innovation, and it's kind of strange if, if you're not familiar with um, the sort of late or the second half of the 20th century sort of innovations in this area, seems to have been in mathematics of all places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mathematics seems to be where formalism is sort of rediscovered uh, in a way that philosophers like Badiou and, and in some ways Livingston think can, can say something um, to this debate, whether to, you know, it seems like classically it's like it's either you're on sort of the platonic side where the one has priority or you're on more the nominalist side where the mm. many has the priority. And it's really like a debate. I think it's it's not good to cash those out in those terms. <laughs> I think mm. it's kind of unhelpful. But that's sort of a, a quick way that it's often it's – often, it's kind of similar to like when people th- think of ethics as being between Kantianism and, and utilitarianism. It's like that's – I, I really hate – when that's when it's taught that way, yeah, um, and so I'm not even sure it's a, it's not even useful. I think to speak about Plato in those such limiting terms either, because I think what you get with the Platonic dialogues is is or let's say Socrates with the Platonic dialogues is is you kind of get like a like a working through via like the dialectic approach, not in the Hegelian sense, but in in the in the in the Socratic sense, like a working through of the many in their relationship to the one, which is also then kind of like ripped apart by the reintroduction of the many, which then attends or portends towards the, you know, back to the one, back to the many. So that I don't think there's like a shut case closed kind of, and therefore everything is reducible to the one. Like Plato is often taught. I think there's, there's something that's much more processual about even that approach to thought and being don't you think yeah i mean i think with many of these things the the sort of strict dichotomy of you know either this thing or it's the other thing yeah. always misses out on how probably both sides but oftentimes it's the it's the side on the abstract and actually is trying to integrate them and maybe it doesn't do that very very well or maybe it fails in certain aspects or privileges certain things that shouldn't but it's usually trying to integrate them in a certain way where mm. that's often sort of passed over in this um by this method of like presenting them as as opposites or in constant contradiction or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so in this section, um, in the introduction, that's called the uh, the four orientations of thought. Um, Paul Livingston directly appeals to Badiou and set theory and the Russell paradox, which also for people if you're listening and you're interested in this, this is. Starting from a similar set of concerns as the Marcus Gabriel book, Fields of Sense, that we were like 80% through, um, and also the political, like, uh, international relations project of Sergei Prozorov um, that we did a series on his book. So we've kind of been working through this similar set of concerns for a while. Um, but it's basically that, that okay, like, like Russell's paradox teaches us that there is no such thing as a one-all. There is no set of all sets. And Badiou kind of, he works from within that framework, argues quite rigorously in being an event for that position that there is no sense of, of the one-all or a set of all sets. So that means that there is no like single way that we can think of, or what is, how does Gabriel say it? There is no single plane of reality, right? But that what we have is a sort mm-hmm. of like, 
incompleteness of worlds, or Gabrielle calls it like the no world theory. Badu thinks about it in terms of like infinite infinite sets, worlds within worlds, within worlds, within worlds, right? But there is no single kind of container that we can think of in terms of being like the universe or the world or the plane of reality. And so um, that's kind of like Badu's hobby horse uh, ontologically. And, and Livingston is kind of like, cool, like, yeah. Yeah, and so Livingston cashes this out. And this seems, I think, pretty consistent with um, also what we talked about in the Gabriel book a couple of years ago, that there's a kind of, that that uh, mathematical formalism in the 20th century, both in cancer and the idea of transfinite, uh, transfinities, and also in um, Gödel's incompleteness theorem, help you understand that formally you have to make a sort of decision between incompleteness and inconsistency. And that uh, yeah. there is no there is no way that thought is able to um, remain consistent while also having a complete totality um, or sort of uh, placing everything under a single concept or set of concepts that's complete while also maintaining consistency. And so you have to sacrifice one or the other. And so we'll see that this sets up a, a quadrant of these four orientations of thought where uh, different moves are made with regard to these two notions of completeness and consistency. Mm. Okay, so let's lay out the four orientations. Yeah, that that uh, that he basically says these are these are the four options that we got. Right. So the first one is the transcendent orientation, and this is sort of I I he doesn't name this, but I was thinking in my notes here about how this basically references the idea of the great chain of being, which is sort of the what's generally understood as the pre-modern conception of ontology. Ontology just being the study of being or what it means to be. And so mm. uh, this, this is a view where um, all beings uh, are only can only be understood to be such that they are referenced or in some way connected to a supreme or transcendent being. Um, and so they, they sort of gain their sense of being through their connection with that supreme sense. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, this would be the classic things like, uh, it doesn't have to be God, but it certainly can be God who, uh, function this in this way, such that there's no way of understanding what something is unless it's connected to this supreme thing. Um, and that can come from, you know, a sort of functionalist understanding where God creates things. And so things have their meaning only insofar as they fulfill that function, um, I don't know that it has to be just in that way, but that's probably maybe the easiest way of thinking about or easiest like instance in which to think about uh, this happening, right? So what does it mean to be a human? In what sense is a human a human? Well, it's only in their connection to God's purpose for human beings to live in a certain way or to be a certain way, right? So you have to, you have to connect that sense of what it means to be a human to uh, God's proposed function for humans or purpose for humans to understand what it means to be a human. So that's the the sort of transcendent orientation, which is you know generally considered, like I said, to be pre-modern. So mm. um, I don't know if if there's a genea. The reason doesn't do a genealogy here that I that I could see, but I think usually it's thought that in the modern or in the West at least this was sort of undercut by several things, but most principally in the ideological realm, it's in or in the theoretical realm, it's it's like Darwinism or something like that, right? Mm. Seems to uh, undercut that notion. Um, and so in, you know, modern science also comes into that as well as modern science doesn't, doesn't function in a way that you need to understand, um, 
supreme beings or transcendent beings in order to understand what things are. You can sort of move things around um, in experience, and then you can sort of make deductions from there to understand what things are. So modern science seems pretty antithetical to that transcendent orientation as well. Yeah, he does refer to this also, he kind of like renames it because Badiou's term for this orientation is the transcendent orientation. For Livingston, he calls it ontotheological. And I think yeah, what's, yeah. It, what's interesting is we can, we, can, we can look at certain tendencies that we've talked about a lot on the podcast, about certain tendencies within, you know, um, like scientific naturalism that does kind of then seed the ground to some sort of transcendent superexistence that they kind of just throw their hands in the air and say, well, that's that. That explains everything, you know? And this is something that Gabrielle in particular kind of really rails against any sort of system of thought that posits a single domain of reality. Like one of my, I've got some pieces coming out here and one of my kind of critiques of, of certain conceptions of time and temporality, we could look even at like, like Einstein's conception of time is that very often at the end when you kind of catch Einstein in, in his more kind of like uh, relaxed moments, he's kind of like, and God is kind of holding everything together in, uh, you know, kind of like the, some sort of like space-time reality, right? Um, or, you know, that science is like, and it's kind of like, well, that's just kind of like the natural laws or something like that. And if you run into somebody that's doing that, they're kind of like, appealing to this super existence that supposedly holds everything together that explains everything from the perspective of like a single plane of reality or a single domain of existence so there there are tendencies that do even if we're going to do a genealogy that that aren't simply reducible to the pre-modern because that sometimes that kind of like slips in the back door there's like a dogmatism that can slip in the back door an ontotheological dogmatism okay i see i think about it that way but that kind of fits with um uh, Livingston has a diagram in this in this section where he sets up um, two different axes on which you can you can take these four orientations of thought or understand these four orientations of thought and their connections. And he has the ontotheological or transcendent orientation on the dogmatic side, yeah. um, in the sense that it saves um, it saves completeness, and so that's that's one sense, but it also saves consistency. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do wonder. I don't know what to think about the idea that modern science has ontotheological tendencies in that sense. Maybe, yeah, I guess that makes sense that that it would that like natural laws then are playing the role of God. It seems like that maybe works in some ways, but then doesn't in others because you don't necessarily look to modern science. In the same way you look to God for understanding what it means for something to be. Maybe some people do. Maybe like, you know, absolute reductive naturalists do that or something. But I don't know. It seems like most of the time they fall a little bit more into like the A.J. Iyer uh, emotivist uh, side and just, you know, the, um, what does he call it? The constructivist uh, side where you kind of just say those things that are sort of unsayable and then remove them from the scene. Because they don't fit within the, the norms of modern science. Well, he does refer to this super-existence also as an ineffable other. So there's a kind of like relinquishing... I, I, I don't think that we can just simply say that like like 
modern science always falls into that because actually I think it fits better in what he calls like the criteriological orientation, which we'll get to in a second. But I think there are certain tendencies that sometimes can, you know, throw their hands in the air and appeal to an ineffable other that is kind of... I don't think that in the scientific literature you tend to see that, and I don't think when you really talk to scientists, but I do think that it, it maybe there's like this human tendency to retreat into these kind of easy sentiments, you know? Um, and so maybe because the scientific method, you know, on the surface, what it tries to do is is war against this this ontotheological tendency or this transcendent tendency, this transcendent orientation, but that maybe sometimes because humans, you know, uh, engage in abstraction, they kind of let the let the super existence in the back door sometimes, you know, even if methodologically they're trying to kind of like war against that habitually. I don't know. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And there's a sense in which I do feel like someone like Einstein in making those kinds of claims is in a sense being more honest than someone who just sort of rejects all of metaphysics as being the like relegated to the realm of the unsayable, right? Yeah. Even if I I don't I don't agree with it, um, there's something a little bit more honest about that. That might just be because it's it's at least grappling with with an important question, whereas I think relegating everything to the um, everything outside of modern science to the to the unsayable is not even trying to. It's just dismissing a problem as if it's not a problem. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So that's that's the uh transcendent slash ontotheological orientation. Uh the second orientation, he does kind of trace I guess there is like a genealogy in his terms, uh, to Kant. Um he says it is the one that is implicit in traditional nominalism as well as in some forms of critical thought since Kant. And he says, but it reaches its full methodological expression with the 20th century linguistic turn. And um, Badiou calls it the constructivist orientation. Livingston calls it the criteriological uh, orientation. And essentially this is where the totality of existence is regulated by the discernible protocols of a meaningful language, comprehensible in themselves and capable of distinguishing between the sayable and the non-sayable. So then, reflection on the presumably determinant structure of language yields a kind of critical enterprise that involves the drawing of a regulative line between sense and nonsense, or between the sayable and what cannot, within the determinant norms definitive of a language, be said. And then he said... In, in some of its most exemplary forms, this is the project of a kind of limited, limitative policing of the sayable. And so he says here the totality of the sayable is understood as comprehended by the determinant syntactical rules for the use of the language in question, and thus as not only a bounded, but a finite whole, outside of which it is possible for the theorist or the inventor of language unproblematically to stand. And this is the one that I think is really interesting because... I think with with this you kind of get the um you know kind of like verificationism you get this this appeal to well what we are what we are doing is we are really examining the reality of of things that you can actually cognize or talk about that which is sayable um 
But what ends up happening is that there's sort of a power move here where the theorist kind of invents the structure, invents the form, invents the, the, the like, chooses, picks and chooses, selects what inputs are included into the, into the form, and then, um, you know, kind of, like, appeals to certain norms that regulate that form's existence and perpetuation. So there's a regulative principle that kind of preconditions, if you will, the possibilities for that which is sayable. But outside of that, the theorist is able to stand objectively, right? They're not implicated in their own kind of formalist construction. Yeah. Hmm. I had trouble with this section. Okay. Um, let, let me ask, a, like, let me sort of um, express what was troubling me and see if you can help me clear up something. Okay. So it seems like, so I totally agree with Livingston at the beginning that this whole debate hinges on the classical problem of the one and the many, which ultimately is about the relationship of thought to being. And that is one of the foundational problems in philosophy. I mean, I think like the foundational like set of problems in philosophy is what is the relationship between being, thought, and value. Um, so, and everything kind of is reduced to that ultimately. Um, but then here, we're not talking about thought, we're talking about language. What's sayable, right? And that seems to me a problem because that's not, language is not thought. And thought can exist without language. And so I, th I think we just get off track a little bit when we start talking about the relationship between language and being without connecting it to the more fundamental feature, which is thought. Um, can't have language without thought, but you can have thought without language. So, so, but let me just push back just a little, or maybe, maybe, maybe a clarification. I think what he's saying is, is that, so this tendency, um, is like a post-Kantian tendency where there's this tendency towards like a formalist constructivism around that which is thinkable. But for Livingston, it, he says it reaches its full methodological expression in the 20th century linguistic turn. So I think, I think he's seeing a tendency that shifts in its, in its different instantiations. And so when he's talking about the policing of the sayable and, and he's focusing on linguistic protocols. I think what he's doing is he's saying there was a turn towards language in the 20th century and that that is different maybe from what you're talking. So I think he I think he would admit that there's a distinction. I don't know if he's conflating thought and language here. I think he's saying that there's this tendency, we we can see it with the post-Kantian tradition, and then its zenith is in the linguistic turn. Yeah, I mean I certainly agree that that there's a sense in which the linguistic turn, I don't think this is ultimately a mistake, thinks about thought and language identically. And so it makes these right. um, constructivist claims about language that maybe Kant would have made about thought. Um, or like maybe post-Kantians, I should say, would have made about thought. Yeah. Um, that said, I mean, I just, I think that this this way of construing it makes, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't know the verificationist literature like as well as somebody who studies Carnap or whatever, but it does seem to me like, like the verificationism fundamentally is policing what's sayable, right? There are certain things that you just can't say because reference fails, right? But that doesn't mean that they think that that language constructs reality. I mean, verification is don't think that. Um, right. So it just seems like 
there's a kind of linguistic constructivism which does say that, which says that in, in some way, like language constructs our ontological categories. And that's a um, very different claim than the claim that um, saying things about religion or aesthetics or morality or metaphysics is is fails because it, it can't refer. It can't, you know, it doesn't have a verification uh, like condition through which it could refer mm. properly. Uh, I think both of those are like false. They're both wrong, but uh, in very different ways. I'm just worried that this that this um, is sort of bringing those two different moves into the same arena when they aren't. And if we, I think we made a, if we made a little bit better of a distinction between thought and language, we maybe wouldn't have to. I don't know if this really matters ultimately. Maybe I'm just like getting stuck on something that isn't super important in the end, but. I just, I just don't know that verificationists are constructivists, I guess, is the idea. They're like limitivists or something, right? Or are limitivists is a better way to put it. They just, you know, eliminate lots of things and and yeah. leave what they think is non-constructed left over. It's just a very, you know, narrow conception of what's non-constructed that's left over. And that seems different than like the more explicitly constructivist activity, which argues that ontology is constructed in some way by thought or and or language maybe that's why livingston renames it from the constructivist to what he calls the criteriological right which seems to be right. more accurate to the to the points that you're bringing up Badiou's term for it is the constructivist orientation because this is what Badiou says he says that the constructivist orientation sets forth the norm of existence by means of explicit constructions Right? It ends up subordinating existential judgment to finite and controllable linguistic protocols. Let us say any kind of existence is underpinned by an algorithm allowing a case that is the matter of to be effectively reached. So that's for Badiou, but then for Livingston, he says, uh, he does talk about you know this idea of the policing of the sayable, in the criteriological orientation. Um, and he says that exactly what you're saying, the totality of the sayable is itself understood as comprehended by the determinant syntactical rules for the use of the language in question, and thus not only a bounded but finite whole outside of which it's, it's possible for the theorist to unproblematically stand. And then he says the political correlate of this orientation is thus a conventionalism that sees the totality of a language as wholly perspicuous from outside its determinant bounds, but forecloses or ignores the question of the possibility of language or meaning as such. Since it is always possible to stand outside a determinate language and specify its principles, it is always possible to exceed a determinate bounded language with another. Thus, the criteriological orientation can grasp infinity only as the potentially infinite openness of a successive hierarchy of types, but at the cost of its own possible capture by a still higher language. And this is the orientation at the root of parameterization, which attempts to resolve paradox by way of the inscription of a rigorous and unending hierarchy of types or languages. So I think that what he's he's saying is precise. I think he's trying to to take what Badu is doing, and I think he's trying to like see how it is that we can understand the linguistic turn and the post-Kantian post-Kantian tendencies as maybe not being constructivist, because I think he might quibble with that definition, but as um, being criteriological, as being concerned with like creating the parameters through linguistic 
like I was going to say construction, but through linguistic formalism, <laughs> which which I think Badiou would say is a constructivist tendency or, or constructionist activity. I, I, I don't know, but I don't know if Livingston is, is making that same point. And maybe I'm just splitting hairs at this point. Like you said, maybe it's not ultimately important to the point that he's making, but that's just kind of what I was thinking. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still struggling with I'm trying to understand what this whole, um, uh, what, what did he call it? Parameterization. Yeah, I can't even say that word. Uh, parameterization uh, kind of function is, is the idea that like, so you have these uh, sets of conceptions in a particular language, and then you can create a meta language, which then from the outside formalizes those things. But then that meta language can itself have a meta language. Yeah, and that that process is unending. Yes, yeah, it's just this ending, this unending game of like um, parameterization of creating the parameters of what's sayable and what's not sayable, and and then here's the political twist, the the rub that's important for him is that the theorist that's engaging in this activity, they kind of have a. a a privileged position outside of it. They're not implicated within it, which is important for his his ultimate final place, which is the paradoxical critical orientation, right? So they look at the paradox of totality and they kind of resolve the paradox of like, is there a world of all worlds? You know, the kind of set theoretical Russell paradox. Uh, they look at that, that aporia and they say, well, it's not really, we can resolve it in this way and the way that they do it. And then I think you can go to page 58 and he kind of like, gives brief definitions of the four orientations. And so the criteriological orientation, he says, is any position that attempts to delimit the totality consistently from a stable point outside of it. So that's it. Is they create a totality, this is what's sayable. This is what's sensical. And then that is nonsensical. That is, you know, you cannot speak of that. Or that is beyond the bounds of rationality. But it's that there's a stable point outside of it that is creating that act. That is, that is engaging in that activity of delimitation. So it's still constructing totalities. It's still creating like a set, right? Um, but it's engaging in this perpetual activity of, of doing so from a privileged position. Okay, yeah, that, that seems like more important than the actual constructing side of it, right? Because I mean, like the, the verificationists, for instance, are empiricists, right? Like they think experience is more or less passively received. Um, so I think they would, you know, kind of scoff at the notion that there's construction going on here in like a classically Kantian way or whatever. Um, but the, yeah, I, I see that there's the attempt to delimit the totality consistently from a stable point outside of it. That does sound um, more like verificationism, right? Because it has this, this ungrounded principle of verification, which itself, of course, can't be verified. Exactly. Um, famously. Um and that that is functioning so as to um, to delimit a totality, right? Here are the things that can be said, and here are the things that cannot be said. Right, and, and don't you think? Yeah, but isn't this his critical move, or Badiou's critical move? Is he saying, yeah, they might claim that they're not engaging in a constructivist activity, but actually they are? I think that's the critical move. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering if if construction there just means doing any thought <laughs> like at a certain point like construction doesn't have any meaning if, if it means just like doing a thought <laughs> um 
Well, the difference is this, right? So let's 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 look at it genealogically. So say you've got the pre-modern, the ontotheological. So doing a thought is done, but it's like deductive because you are essentially trying to deduce the many from the one. With the constructivist, you're kind of like, no, 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 we're trying to build up to the one, right? Um, or the criteriological. So it's sort of like a deduction versus an inductive approach. Um, and then And then I think that's kind of the the distinction is I think he's seeing the the criteriological slash constructivist as being like a response to the ontotheological and transcendent, you know, by saying, well, the dogmatic approach, transcendent approach, posits a one that that determines the reality of everything insofar as they like participate in its being or they they only are rational in relation to kind of like this other kind of like master signifier, whereas like the criteriological constructivist, it it inverts that relationship, but that nevertheless it still it still posits a totality, but the way that it does that is that it posits a totality by being ignorant of the kind of like metaphysical um, assumption of those who are out who claim to be outside of it. Yeah, I mean, this this may be unhelpful, but it just, it's it just seems to recapture this notion for me that so much of twentieth and twenty first century philosophy is just relearning Kant and Hegel, mm. because like you could also just see this as dogmatic rationalism that's onto theology, um, and then empiricism that's the constructivist mm, mm, logical mm. formulation, mm. right? Like the relationship between thought and being is one you have to start with the ultimate thought right um and then then that that sort of like explains being to you um all the different kinds of being and then the criteriological or constructivist or empiricist orientation is just like you can you can sort of receive experiences of the many and then use those to build up to um thought like to to abstract thought um and of course like Kant's point was no you can't mm-hmm. <laughs> right you have to have those uh, concepts uh, first to do any sort of thoughts, and I would add experience as well. Um, so yeah, there's 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 I don't know some kind of recapitulation of of Kant, and then I think later Hegel trying to overcome um, that duality in the first place by trying to explain thought as within being, which I think both uh, that seems to be part of Livingston's point, right? Is ultimately we have to think from within. Uh, he talks about within language, but I'm I'm curious what he what he actually means by that. And why language is the most important thing? We can get to that later. Okay. Yeah, and then and then two things I wanted to note, like on this little chart that or this table that he has on page what is it, fifty seven? Um, you know, he's got the four kind of laid out with like the arrows or whatever, and so um, he's got the ontotheological, and he talks about like Aquinas and Aristotle, etc. And he considers that a dogmatic orientation. And then he also, uh, across from that, he has criteriological constructivist, and he talks about Carnap, Ayer, Russell. But then he also talks about Foucault and Rorty, right? So this isn't just simply like, um, you know, analytic philosophers of language, but there are also like post-structuralist and post-modern thinkers who he fits within this tendency. Um and they're critical orientations. They're not dogmatic orientations. So they, they engage in the activity of critique in like the post-Kantian sense. But what I think is interesting is if you look at what unites the criteriological and the ontotheological in Livingston's 
table is that they're sovereign orientations. And that mm-hmm. to me is that's interesting because that's the political thing that's interesting to me is is what I think he he's doing is you know how like what I love about Prozorov's project is Prozorov gives us you know this kind of like set of principles that he believes derive from the void you know which just so happened to also be the great three principles of the French Revolution right um but that they serve as like a check that you can kind of look at your political and, and your social activities and be like, well, does it stimulate freedom? Does it stimulate, you know, a commoning and community and equality? And to what degrees does it and to what degrees does it not? And it's like it, it gives you this this thing that you can constantly check in with. I think you get something similar with what Livingston's doing here too. It's kind of like he's creating these four categories, and we haven't talked about the final two yet, but he's creating these four categories so that you can kind of be like, okay, so like – Let's take a thinker like Marx, who there's so much debate about Marx. Like, is he Hegelian? Is there like, is he analytic? You know, is it like, how much does he, is he a romantic? Like, how much does he inherit from the romantic German tradition? And no, it's British empiricism. And there's so much, right, that like people are trying to like squeeze out of him. And I think you can kind of like fit, well, there are like tendencies in Marx that he does kind of fall into a criteriological or constructivist orientation and maybe there are tendencies where he falls into an ontotheological like particularly like well maybe not so much Marx but like we'll take Marxian thought but like Engels when he starts really valorizing the dialectic of nature like that's just straight ontotheological right so there's you can look at things and you can kind of be like okay well when it tips into this tendency this is what this helps me think of. This helps me think of, okay, so they're kind of engaging in like a transcendent orientation because it's a sovereign orientation. They're appealing to a super existence or an ineffable other that kind of like supposed to like ground or explain all of reality. Okay, and that might be problematic because of X, Y, and Z. Or, oh, okay, no, actually they're not. They're they're critical. But nevertheless, does that get them out of a sovereign orientation or are they kind of like sneaking it in the back door because... Um, you know, they're kind of like holding a privileged position for the party, for example. Like this is one of the critiques I think of Lukash that I've engaged in um, is that Lukash kind of theorizes the party as being like that thing. And this is where I think Sartre is very critical of the Communist Party is that it has a privileged position outside um, of, of the totality of politics, delimiting what is sayable and what's non-sayable or what's doable and non-doable, what's rational and non-rational, while uh, exempting itself from any internal critique from within the the limits that it's established, right? And so I think you can kind of use this a, a, a helpful in that sense. What do you think? Okay, yeah. One second. Remind me again what differentiate or distinguishes the sovereign orientations from the post-Cantorian ones. Well, we haven't talked about the post-Cantorian ones, but essentially the post-Cantorian ones um, they accept the idea that there is no set of all sets. Right? They don't try to reconcile the paradox by totality. Okay, right. And where they, where they are distinguished then is that they... Um, one chooses the completeness. The generic side, one chooses yeah. consistency, right? That's okay. right. So Bedou, So this is the third one. The third orientation is Bedou's own, what he calls like the generic orientation, which is this idea that, okay, so rather than try to reconcile this problem of the set of all sets... I'm going to be like, yeah, fuck yeah, incompleteness all the way. However, there's a discursive consistency that allows us to be able to kind of like speak about these different worlds within worlds within worlds 
um, but in ways that also admits to the in impossibility of ever kind of reconciling everything within like a single plane of uh, of understanding or of comprehension. Right. And so, yeah, this is this again, this is going to get me to the my ultimate struggle with this, whether there really is a fundamental difference between um, the paradoxical critical orientation and the generic one. But do, do we need to talk any more about the uh, criteriological and ontotheological, the sovereign orientations, or can we can we move no, to yeah. the post-Cantorian ones? Post-Cantorian, and the reason that's important is because Badiou has the third one, and then Livingston's whole project is basically like, well, but Badiou's forgetting about a fourth one. And so that's that's kind of why the, that's what he's doing. Right. Yeah, so the idea then is um, the, the post-Cantorian orientations, both Badiou's and Livingston's, um, they recognize reflexivity and the paradoxes that fall from that coming from Cantor and Gödel. Um, nevertheless, uh, he says the paradoxical critical and the one he's championing draws out the consequences of the being of the totality and sees the effects of these paradoxes always as operative within the one of this totality. I don't know what that means. <laughs> mm. Let's go back a couple pages Let's look on page 55 when he first introduces Bedu's generic orientation. Um, okay. So he says, it arises from Cantor's discovery of multiple infinities. So worlds within worlds within worlds, all of which are infinite in themselves. And it takes into account the implication of the self-representation of the infinite totality formerly figured by diagonalization. So this is confusing, but here's a quote. So the third orientation for Badiou, this is Badiou's quote, the third orientation posits existence as having no norms save for discursive consistency. It lends privilege to indefinite zones, multiples subtracted from any predicative gathering of thoughts, points of access, and subtractive donations. Say all existence is caught in a wandering that works diagonally against the diverse assemblages expected to surprise it. Okay, so then, then Livingston says, so thus, applying no other norm other than formal consistency, the generic orientation relentlessly pursues along the diagonal the existence of all that which escapes constructivism's limitative doctrine of thought. So constructivism, or, or the criteriological, tries to say that there are these like meta-language things, blah, 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 for, for Badiou, those other things, they don't have like a privileged position of objectivity, but they themselves are uh, formal, they are formal operations, or they are formal, what he calls indefinite zones. So what he's trying to do is he's ontologizing, I think, in some ways, what the criteriological theorists kind of like um, don't don't have any sort of like formal um, ascription of, right? And the way that he ontologizes them is by talking about this like formal consistency, this discursive consistency, that there is this like formal process where it's just endless worlds within worlds within worlds, and each of those worlds are composed of all their different transcendental coordinates that position everybody so that you're always oriented within a, within a position rather than having some sort of like objective standard that you're able to um, speak from. You know, there's no stable point outside of it. So when Bajou's saying that there's no norm for existence or being other than formal or discursive consistency, is that just saying the only law that holds for 
for ontology is the law of non-contradiction? Yeah, I I mean, that would be Mayasu's interpretation of this, right? Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Is that, are they saying the same thing then? I think, I mean, Mayasu was Baju's student, so I wonder if this that's kind of where he... Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's that commonality of mathematics for both Mayasu and Baju as well, is that this is this discursive consistency, this formal consistency, this generic um, diagonalization. It isn't linguistic protocols. It isn't like um, syntactic rules or anything. Well, maybe it is syntactic. It's purely syntactic. It's not semantic though, right? There's no semantic content in it. It's just pure, maybe it's just purely syntactic formalism. Yeah, that again rubs up against this notion that we're talking about language again when I feel like we should be talking about thought. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, that's my, that was my, that was my interpretation. So he's not saying that. And I don't think Livingston says that anywhere here as well. Right? Yeah, but again, it's, dis- it's, discur- it's discursive consistency, uh, right? Yeah. So again, it's, it's language-based. Um, yeah. And I mean, that, that makes sense because yeah. non-contradiction, contradictions happen in language. Um, I guess that's also a, po- a point where analytic philosophy of language and continental right. philosophy of language don't meet up because <laughs> in analytic philosophy of language, you're not allowed to talk about contradictions except in the context of um, language sentences um but obviously the continental philosophy to talk about contradictions well beyond that context um but my assumption is that but sorry there's a, there's a quote right here no go ahead well well but livingston says Badu takes the generic orientation his orientation to refute any critical appeal to the structure or nature of language because all appeals to the structure or nature of language are assimilated to the constructivist orientation for Bedu. Uh, Livingston doesn't agree with that. That's the whole point of him introducing his fourth orientation, but that's Bedu's. That's yeah, what I mean, Livingston says Bedu One of the things I, thought that I, I like about Bedu's orientation is that he, he thinks that reality exceeds language. I mean, see, in the, in the, in the, um, in the figure that's on page uh, 57 in the for Livingston, he says that dogmatic orientations, which would be Bajus and ontotheology, um, share the, the notion that truth exceeds language. And I, again, I just like, is it truth or is it reality? Because <laughs> truth doesn't exceed language. Like, I don't think that, but that's just because truth is a relation that, or is a property that sentences have, and sentences are part of language. But it seems to me like what Bajus argues is that reality exceeds language. I know he uses the word truth to talk about things that are non-linguistic. I was going to say he does use the word yeah, truth. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. he's, I think what he's getting at is reality exceeds language. So I don't know if we're, when we're saying the word truth, if we're talking about reality, if we're talking about language. Um, well, but don't both the ontotheological and then generic kind of conflate truth and reality? Like, isn't that one of the, the, the key things that you get with the ontotheological orientation is that that, that which is real is that which is true and the only reason that language can even you know assume or even uh like what's the word i'm looking for approach approximate to reality is because they're related they're intimately related right so all real thought i'm sorry all true thought 
is only true insofar as it's connected to the truth. I mean, Christians love to talk about this, right? Like when when Pilate's like, uh, what is truth, you know, and um, in the Bible, and they're like, see, Jesus is the truth. The word is the truth. God is the truth. They're not speaking about it in terms of semantic content. They're just speaking about it as being like participating in reality slash truth. Yeah, I mean, this is the the fundamental like uh, equivocation that um, I'm struggling with. It's just like, so obviously when we, we talk about these kind of poetic um, like metaphors with regard to truth, like that that happens everywhere, right? Um, and Baju pretty clearly talks about truth in an extra linguistic sense, right? He's talking about like truth procedures and stuff like that. And he, he from what I remember, very much rejects the idea that language sort of governs reality like he's he's rejecting that sort of um you know mid-20th century uh postmodern notion right um and so it seems to me like if we're talking about the relationship between language and reality or like being and language which again i, I think we should probably do thought first but if we're doing that but jews coming down on the side of being exceeds language like reality exceeds language he thinks there are some things that are unsayable in particular like discourses right and like part of the point of um the like political side of his philosophy is like going to the void the thing that's unsayable and in like a in a kind of discursive formulation and then like exposing that or something right Mm, attesting to it yeah yeah and it, it seems to me like part of what livingston's trying to do is to say no, actually, there isn't an unsayable language can grasp reality. He says language captures truth. Yeah, so let's talk about his for his orientation then, because this is where he's critical of Bedou, right? Right. Yeah. So Livingston's own orientation is what he calls the paradoxical critical. So because he basically, like, Bedou says, you know, that... Uh, the generic orientation refutes any critical appeal to the structure or nature of language, which he assimilates uniformly to the constructivist orientation. And then Livingston says, does it in fact do so though? Or is there in fact another possible method by which thought, figuring the radical paradoxes of self-belonging and totality that find expression in diagonalization, Russell's paradox and Gödel's incompleteness theorem, can relate to the totality of what can be said or of what is? And he says, in fact, there is another orientation, one that is fully cognizant of these paradoxes and yet does not refuse the relevance of internal linguistic reflection in the way that Bedou's generic orientation does. So he wants to bring language back. He wants to give language a place while not while, while still kind of accepting Bedou's critique of the criteriological orientation. And so this is what Livingston calls the paradoxico-critical orientation. And it operates by tracing the destabilizing implications of the paradoxes of self-reference, or Russell's paradox, at the boundaries of the thinkable and the say, uh, at the boundaries of the thinkable and the sayable, that this orientation is indeed fundamentally different from Bedou's, despite its common passage through the paradoxes of self-reference, is already suggested by the very different relation it bears to the analysis of the structure of language. That is, whereas Bedou's generic orientation positions itself beyond or before all reflection on language and its structure, just like you were saying, truth exceeding language. The paradoxical critical orientation depends crucially on the possibility of language self-referentially to figure itself by displaying its own structure. 
even if this figuring will necessarily be paradoxical. Yeah, so I mean, I guess what I'm what I'm wondering then is is Livingston saying reality depends upon language, but not in the way that constructivists think. So, like a thoroughgoing constructivist, so. like linguistic constructivist, would say that our categories of thought um, are preceded by language. So, in a sense, you have to like uh, both ontogenetically and phylogenetically, or whatever. Um, Language comes first, and then conceptions come afterwards. So there's no such thing as like a, a conception or any kind of thought that exists prior to language. Uh, that's like a typical, like a foundational linguistic constructivism type of claim to make, right? Um, again, I don't think all the all the what are called the constructivists think that, but that's like the most extreme version, right? Like a paradigmatic version. And so is Livingston saying then, well, okay, reality doesn't depend upon language in that way. Right, but it depends upon language in a different way. Where, like, I'm not really sure what he's what he's saying here. What the, what kind of dependence relation is between reality and language? But like, you need language to realize the sense or the the way that reality and thought, being and thought, are related. Like, language is the means through which to conceptualize that relation is that what he's saying mm. let's let's i i think so um this is where i'm i'm thinking because he doesn't list hegel on this chart which i find yeah, he definitely seems like he's in, in he the paradox here. yeah hovering over it yeah yeah exactly exactly um and neither does he list kant but i think that for him kant would fit within the criteria logical and constructivist i think that hegel would fit within the paradoxical critical. Um, he refers to Derrida, Deleuze, Agamben, Lacan, which is interesting, and late Wittgenstein. But I do think with the reference to Lacan, that's the Hegel connection. Um, the late, it, it's just, it's an interesting grouping of people. But here's, 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 here's how I kind of have understood this. And this actually helped because he drew... Oh, I actually have a chart in front of me. Literally, dude, I have a board in front of me <laughs> of my own like diagramming of how I understand these four orientations. So um, the ontotheological, the way I see it, is you draw a circle around reality with a capital R, the totality of everything that exists, right? And then outside of that, you've got like God or super existence or whatever, right? That's inexplainable it's ineffable it is the other upon which that circle of all that is reality exists outside of that there is nothing it's just appeals to god or whatever then i've got another circle that i draw for the criteriological constructivist and i've got like a person outside of that and so this is where you get like the turn to the self i think mm -hmm. um the centering of the subject i think you really get this with like this is kind of like the um the the, the romanticization of the Cartesian subject that then goes through its own modifications and morphings all the way up through, let's say, the linguistic turn. But nevertheless, I think it starts from the turn to the self. So God is displaced, and what you have then is a sort of like um, tendency towards subjectivity kind of constructing totality, 
So the subject's outside of it. Then with the generic one, I just have like a bunch of circles overlapping each other and they all have like an infinity signal inside of them um, because it's just worlds within worlds within worlds. There is no outside position. There is no totality of all totalities. It's just these co-constituting, um, you know, kind of like interpenetrating, interrelating, endless proliferation of worlds. There's no totality. But with the paradoxical critical orientation, totality comes back. There is a sense in which Livingston affirms the existence of totality, of all that can be said, or of the world, or of being. But it's a totality that itself, the limits of of it, like, stretch and twist and pull. They get bigger, they get larger, they get smaller. And, and those limits themselves are flexible, or I mean, flexible might be the, the, the wrong term, but that they're stretchy. You know what I mean? And there's no position outside of it, but that actually on the boundary of those limits, that's where language exists. So it still kind of accepts the critical project, but it also wants to accept the rejection of... Um, Oh, but but it doesn't but it doesn't it doesn't okay so it wants to accept the critical project but it doesn't want to do that by seeding the grounds for the possibility that we can still think in terms of totality in what sense is it is it conceptualizing totality because language can capture any truth let's see what he says that that might be that might be it yeah and, and maybe it's maybe it's not because language can capture any truth but language is like participatory in the production of truth that's kind of how I've always understood it, but not like ultimately or finally. Yeah, I mean, I have flagged the the bottom of page fifty nine. Okay. Um, so it's after he's sort of explaining the diagram on fifty seven, and he says, "We may group the two orientations on the left as critical doctrines of language." So he means there um, the paradoxical critical one and the criteriological one, right? Um, they're critical doctrines of language, whereas those on the right are dogmatic doctrines of truth. So he means they're the, the Jews formulation and the ontotheological one, right? And then he says, I do not mean this term dogmatic to be pejorative, but simply to indicate the point of their own, of their common insistence. So he means the Jew and ontotheology here claim that there must be some truth beyond language. Whereas the orientations on the left, his and the criteriological one, are linked in refusing to consider truth outside its possibility for linguistic expression. So they they only think they think language can capture any truth. However, this possibility may manifest itself. Yes. And so, I guess what I'm, what I'm struggling with here is again like what truth and language are doing and where where thought is. Since thoughts thoughts, I mean, in the beginning of this section, is supposed to be what we're thinking, right? It's the relation between being and thought. Um, it seems to me like depending upon how you equivocate on on truth and language here and where thought plays um, in the whole discussion, why can't you say these aren't mutually exclusive because the Jews claiming or the, like the generic orientation claims that reality or being what is, is not dependent on language, right? It precedes language in a way. Mm-hmm. But then also claim that language can express anything that is, which seems to be Livingston's claim, right? Language can capture a kind of totality, although an inconsistent one. Um, that's that seems to me right. <laughs> um, those two claims are not 
mutually exclusive and they both seem to be right. And I, I don't know if, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting at what Livingston's saying. Um, the idea that language can capture a kind of inconsistent totality. Um, but I, I don't know if I'm capturing, but Jew's notion, since he does say truth, um, maybe not precedes, but truth, uh, exceeds language. Exceeds. This is Yeah. Yeah. Um, Whereas it seems to me like, well, okay, reality being exceeds language. That seems right. I don't even know. I don't quite understand what I mean for truth to exceed language. Other than just to say that there are some things in a, in a certain discourse that are unsayable. I guess that's the idea, right? Yeah, but without appealing to like, I don't know, like a Wittgensteinian mysticism or something like that. Right, right. And not in the same way that like a um, verificationist would say something is unsayable because it right, because, refer or something. Well, and then here's my question. With that with that reality in Badu's sense, let's call it truth again, like it's mathematizable though, is it not? Mm-hmm. So if it's mathematizable, is it thinkable? That, that seems to be Beju's notion, right? But but then that doesn't seem to be the way that Livingston's character... Yes, I think so. But then it seems like Livingston is saying but that actually for Beju that there is this truth that exceeds the possibility of conceptualization or cognition. He doesn't think absolutely though, right? Well, the void. Listen. The void is. The void is non-cognizable. As such, like in itself. Okay. And, any, and, and all you can ever do then is attest to the ways in which the void is ever cognized via sort of like transcendental operations. So in that sense, the empty set. Is that the empty set? Um, or let's just say the void. The void is that which is entirely uncognizable for Bedu. Yeah, I the mean, difference in order to say it's not... In order to claim it's non-cognizable, though, you're cognizing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but then but then the difference between Bedou and onto theology, even though as they both are quote unquote dogmatic in Livingston's terms, um, the difference is that that the onto theological actually does it does kind of like cognize via like the sovereign decision via the rule by via the law. It does actually cognize that super ineffable existence outside. Right, that's that's the political game that the ontotheological plays. That maybe Badu's working through of, of Platonism uh, in his own way. That his is trying to kind of like avoid um, is that that you don't personalize that ineffable other, and then in so doing, actually kind of like reveal that what you're engaging is a sort of like political activity of sovereign mastery over. Um, over the totality of existence, which is what the ontotheological orientation does whether it wants to admit it or not okay so if we were summing up what's going on here with the original right the introductory section of this um of this section says that we're trying to conceptualize the relationship between being and thought right um the ontotheological orientation says the relationship between being and thought is um that there's a supreme being 
and that all thought can only um, be meaningful in relation and connection to a reference to supreme being, right? The criteriological orientation says that um, I'm here. I'm struggling again because everything in the criteriological section is about language and not directly about thought. But there's some sense in which you can thoughts operation or function is to sort of delimit being through stepping outside of thought or something or having different levels of thought, one of which steps outside the previous one to delimit it. And that process happens to infinity or something like that. I'm not really sure. Well, when it's, it's the activity of interested subjects who objectively have a privileged position to construct those realms of delimitation. Okay. So it thought has some sort of privileged position on being or something. Yes. Yes. Although that, yeah, that, that happens in extremely different ways. If you're talking about like a empirical realist version versus like a, you know, linguistic constructivist version. Um, but okay. Which is interesting, but in he common. links, he links Carnap with Rorty. Right. Yeah. Which is what's, what's, I'm struggling with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is where we need Obviously. Liam Bright to come talk to us and help <laughs> us with the Carnap. Yeah. So, okay. And then the generic orientation is claiming about the relationship between being and thought that, I mean, it seems to me like Baju's notion is that being precedes thought and thought is unable to capture all of being specifically in, or namely in the void. Right. Okay. But then, and then I because of that, that because there is, there is no totality. It's just worlds, infinite worlds within worlds. Okay. But, but why do you struggle with that? Cause I mean, it, it does seem like, um, thought is able to capture reality through mathematics. Mathematics is fundamental ontology or something like that. Right. So I, I guess I, one thing I, I would want to ask is like, what is Bajou's notion of the relationship between thought and language? Cause like maybe part of the issue for me here is that I'm rubbing up against like the notion that, mm. or the claim that language and thought are in some sense co-determinative or um, maybe even language precedes thought. And that, that seems wrong to me. Um, so I'm struggling with whether we're talking about language or thought as being what can't capture the void or exceeds um, or the, the part where being exceeds uh, language. I don't know. Does that make any sense? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to, act, to actually like formulate what, what I'm struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the fourth one, can you, yeah, and so then the, the paradoxical critical orientation is Livingston's attempt to say that um, thought is able to capture all of being. Um, so you have completeness, um, but it does not do so consistently, which I'm still not sure what, I, what, what that means. Hmm. I, I just, again, if, if consistency means 
um, the law of non-contradiction, or you know, but you call it like discursive consistency. That's in language. Okay, I see that. Um, what does it mean? What would it mean to reject the law of non-contradiction? Because, you know, classically, the reason why you have the law of non-contradiction is because its denial results in the principle's explosion, which is that everything follows. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know what it would mean well, to reject consistency in that way. This is where I wish you were at the uh, school and I wish we could go back in time because that was one of the interlocutors was Grand Priest. And that's mm. precisely what a lot of the conversation focused on was the principle of explosion in this rejection of non-contradiction. So you had Prozorov giving his reading of Bedou, you had Livingston giving his project, and then you had Grand Priest there who was talking about explosion, the principle of explosion. And paraconsistent, yeah, so, paraconsistent logic, yeah. Yeah, it does seem like, just to kind of um, sum up here, there are at least two different interpretations we could have here. Um, one stronger, one weaker, maybe. Or one more radical, maybe. Like a more radical one would be, okay, yeah, this rejects, but by, by denying consistency, we're rejecting the law of non-contradiction. And so language captures reality, but it can do so in literally infinite ways, none of which are contradictory. And so I wondered then about like, what you could even do with that other than just like endless play with language and everything is true. I don't mm. think that's going to be what Livingston's going to say, but that seems like one interpretation you can have just like mm. take the principal explosion and just run with it. Right. <laughs> um, or you could say something that I think more like a Hegelian um, sort of province where you say language and I think thought, are constituent parts of being, right? And they arise within being. So the way in which language and thought are able to capture being is because they are part of it, right? They're not in this privileged position outside of it, the way that the criteriological orientation understood it. They're within, right? And so if we can understand um, thought and language from within being, then we're able to actually understand the way in which thought captures being. Well, I think that would be the kind of Hegelian version of this. I think what Livingston is merely trying to do is say that there are approaches to rec reconciling or working through Russell's paradox, and they do so in different ways. Like, the Deleuzean approach is different from deconstruction in Derrida, right? Mm -hmm. Which is different from Hegel, which is different from, for Livingston, the late Wittgenstein. But that there are these orientations that can be kind of like mapped, that they still accept totality, they accept, they accept the idea that there is a, a single plane of reality, but the way that they do it might be different, right? Yeah, more than just different, right? Like, potentially all true, even if they formally mm -hmm. contradict. Mm. Yeah. So I guess I'm just wondering, though, like, what's, what's the standard of evaluation at that point? 
is there a, there is no standard of evaluation that that is outside delimiting that's part of the thing that's being rejected right mm, mm. yeah because there is no there is no sense in which the totality can be just simply statically formalized you still have to allow for like a an activity of like paradoxical creation so like yeah, i guess that, that big yeah go ahead no, that, that makes sense of the the reference to Agamben then, right? Because Agamben's, and I think he talks about this, Livingston talks about this previously in this um, introduction, right? That Agamben's, what's the, the notion of Agamben of like, um, is it future community? I can't remember what it's called. Um, but anyway, the point where the, it seems like in Agamben, like he doesn't, you know, formalize this for obvious reasons, but like there's a sense in which there's no longer norms or laws or rules in play anymore in understanding itself it seems like but instead a constant like play or something mm. like that um is that kind of what it seems like livingston's trying to give a more formal conception of i think so at least i think that would be one example of what livingston's formalizing yes i do think so Okay, that's interesting because I think even when we talked about Agamben previously on the podcast, right? I think one of the uh, issues that I, I have trouble with with Agamben is just like the thing we're supposed to be reaching for. He he purposefully leaves like unsaid. Yeah, it's I've, kind of I've talked with. The, yeah, and I've talked with a lot of political theorists that that they find Agamben's project like interesting right up to that point. Yeah, it's it's endlessly critical, um, and, and I think to a point where like we even talked about this, and we talked about Agamben's like uh, anti-vax hysteria, right? Which is like when all you have is criticism, and you have no standard of evaluation of what a good thing would be, whether it be a thought mm. or a practice or anything. Um, then that that's all you have is criticism, and then you can't actually do anything other than criticism, right? Mm. Um, like what what would a like a, a just society look like where there isn't one, right? Not one you can formalize or conceive at least, right? It just kind of, I guess, happens. Um, and so it seems like maybe Livingston's taking that criticism of the gambit and being like, well, okay, let's try to do it. Let's try to formalize it. Maybe, maybe we can. I don't know. And that, I, that's you, pure speculation, but. No, no. I like this because you also see that because he puts Derrida in there. So Derrida's notion of like, you know, the, the, democracy to come the kind of future community the future democracy to come is uh mm -hmm. something that you get with derrida um similarly he has deleuze in there as well so i think deleuze's conception of the virtual is something that is kind of excessive of language but not in badu's sense because it's always actualized right or it's always actualizable or in the process of um of having some sort of, you know, differentiation, as he talks about. So that doesn't mean that there isn't something excessive of it. There is. There is always an excess, um, an excessiveness, but the positing of imminence for Deleuze means that he is thinking totality with quotes around it, at least for Livingston. And Livingston's reading is that he's thinking a plane of imminence, which is a single plane of reality, but that that plane of reality both has 
actualized and then potentially actualized or virtualized um, becomings, right? And then here's what's interesting. So, okay, so we talk about Agamben, this idea of like the future community that can't be delimited now. Uh, Derrida, this idea of like democracy to come. Deleuze, the idea of the virtual, right? Um, and if you go to the chart on 57 again or the table, even though the paradoxical critical and the criteriological are um, are grouped together because they're both critical in the sense that language can capture truth, right, in different in their own different ways, he has an arrow that draws from the ontotheological up to the paradoxical critical. So there's a relationship between the unsayable still. There's some sort of admit admission of that which is not yet actualized or that which is not yet delimited or that which is not yet realized or operating it just is that the connection or is it that there's completeness both right hmm well no okay but it's not it's not completeness because the ontotheological god is infinite so it's incomplete right or the ineffable other? Wait, let me see. He does say, he says on page 60, there's a revealing connection along the diagonals. The diagonal from constructivism to the generic represents the common norm of consistency. Then from ontotheology to paradoxical critical, on the other hand, we may draw a line of totality or completeness. Okay, yeah, so it is completeness. Yeah. For both the orientations yeah. involve the assertion of an actually existent whole. This is evident, for instance, in the very direct way the paradoxical criticism interrogates the position of the sovereign being that assures the order of totality within ontotheology. Okay, so this is where I was kind of thinking. So with ontotheology, it has the sovereign being that is ineffable and beyond, and paradoxical critical orientation interrogates this. It interrogates the sovereignty of this. But I think what it does is it, like, denudes the it denudes the the not fully actualized right whereas ontotheology doesn't it it becomes sovereign and the not fully actualized that which is you know forever haunting that which is actualized whereas for paradoxical critical the not fully actualized is like a productive source of creation okay so you mentioned the very beginning i think this is maybe tying some things in uh together that are make it a little neater. You mentioned the very beginning of this discussion that like the relationship between being and becoming seems like the, what's behind a lot of this discussion. Right. And it seems like one thing Livingston, especially in referencing like Deleuze and Derrida and Agamben is trying to do is to say, look, the, there's a suspicion of essentializing the essentializing project that comes with ontology, understanding being. And we need to sort of think of becoming as preceding being. Becoming is more ontologically fundamental than being. Um, But that doesn't result in a sort of constructivist skepticism about truth. Instead... Mm. Mm-mm. You can you can marry a kind of like becoming precedes being, 
while also thinking that language captures truth in a, in a totality, right? It just means that that's not essentializing. It's not stable. Yes. Yes. That seems to be like the ultimate kind of project, right? Yeah. Which, if that's what's going on, I mean, I'm much more sympathetic. Um, I just again wonder. Part of me wanted. Obviously, I haven't read the whole book, so I can't. I can't say very much authoritatively about it. But like, the real important thing seems to be here: integrating being and becoming. <laughs> right. I don't know why one has to precede the other. Logically, um, I guess this is just like the Hegelian in me, right? Where it's just like I, I want to integrate these things. I want to synthesize them together. And say that you can't understand one without the other. Like, you can't understand becoming unless there's something doing the becoming. And there are no things that are that aren't becoming. <laughs> like, uh, why does one of those have to precede the other? Can't they be on an equal footing? Well, I think, I think that that would be Hegel's version of the paradoxical critical. You okay. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, thi- I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Page 253, he speaks, he does link Hegel in relation to the paradoxical critical orientation. So, um, I don't know if it's something that we could just, but so in a more pronounced way, 253, the very last paragraph, okay, says, Hegel's dialectical system contains the formal elements of paradox and contradiction that are essential to the paradoxical, critical, and generic orientations. So he's so Hegel's definitely not onto theology and definitely not criteriological. So it's which one, generic or paradoxical, critical? And his system contains elements that are essential to both. And then he says, doubtless through his understanding of the mechanism of dialectic, the articulation of contradictions, and the paradoxical dialectical journey of self-recognition, Hegel will have been the single pre-20th century philosopher who most profoundly considered the formal structure of reflexivity in its constitutive paradoxes prior to their symbolic articulation and the systems of formal logic and structuralism in our time. Nevertheless, whatever the depth of his recognition and use of these structures... Hegel must too be considered conceptually prior to this great 20th century articulation in that whatever his use or development of paradoxes and contradiction, he too sees them as ultimately capable of reconciliation in a complete and ultimately consistent system. So this is where then Livingston, his reading of Hegel is like a particular, it's like the kind of like Taylorist reading, right? The reconciliation and the the higher synthesis. It wouldn't be the Zizekian. I bet you the Zizekian Hegel, which is why maybe he lists Lacan in the paradoxical critical, is that that's maybe the Lacanian orientation within or or out from the Hegelian um, lineage if you do the Zizekian or the Todd McGowan kind of move that might be paradoxical critical but that Hegel is still achieving some sort of like ultimate synthesis right yeah I mean I I think maybe the thing to do then is just to reject the notion that Hegel has an ultimate synthesis. I mean, I don't think he necessarily does, but um, whether or not he did isn't as important as like whether or not you can conceptualize that. I mean, you, it, it seems to me like you can you can consider that the dialectical process to just continue indefinitely. Um, yeah, and yeah. then you don't have to, and because Hegel doesn't have the baggage about 20th century philosophy of language, 
that a lot of this stuff does, the post-structuralists and the um, linguistic turn uh, analytic philosophers as well, both have that baggage from the linguistic turn. Um, Hegel doesn't have that. He's talking about being in thought, right? Um, he doesn't have the baggage about language. So it seems to me like maybe Hegel would even be a better uh, resource here. But again, that's, you know, without reading the book, so I can't, I can't speak authoritatively about that. But yeah, I just wonder if Hegel's an even better resource than, than Livingston's willing to admit here. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe Cause, yeah, I mean, uh, we Because put- again, yeah. Hegel, Hegel isn't talking about contradictions, right? In language. He doesn't have the, the, the baggage from, from philosophy of language, right? So he's not talking about linguistic contradictions. Um, he's talking about uh, becoming. He's talking about change, right? So that gets to the root of the issue of what the relationship between being and thought is. And, you know, leaving the question about language for later. Um, sorry, yeah, I'm just like trying to figure out what I'm thinking as I'm, as I'm talking here. Which is the best. That's why we have this fucking podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me, let me put a button on that so that your thoughts can continue to percolate. And then maybe as we, cause we've gone long here as we wind down, let me just then say what I think is interesting about this, like sociopolitically. Um, yeah. What I think about it as, as being very useful is that there are, um, political expressions that I think map onto each of these tendencies. And I think that they're varied but I think so. The ontotheological system is one where you get a sovereign whose authority is posited. Like, in the clearest sense, it's like the absolute monarch. But I think also it operates more seductively when you have fidelity to like a nation state. I think that can also exhibit ontotheological tendencies, right? That that becomes the kind of like unquestioned metaphysical first principle. Um, so then you have Polit- like... Political status is sort of deduced from, from some higher plane, that yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah. Existence on a hierarchy, yeah. Exactly, which, which for me, philosophically, conceptually, I think is really interesting because it allows me to kind of see the the shortcomings not only politically where you're like oh politically this results in like you know like domination and oppression which is of course i think one of the things that that does kind of tend to operate within this um but also there's some positives right where you've got like cohesion you know and you've got like a sense of placidness and this is where you find like conservatism really trying to like appeal to the the benefit mm-hmm. of a civic vision or even progressivism. Walter Lippmann, you know, like wrote a book on civic society, you know, talking about like kind of the values of paternalism, you know, and, and being able to like maintain the, the, the order of society. I think you get the, the ideas of like appeals to the global liberal democratic order, um, you know, that you can kind of fit within this ontotheological orientation. And I think the reason I find it valuable from a conceptual level is then you're like, oh, so then what you're doing is you're essentially kind of like, doing theology but in 
political means, which is, of course, like the kind of maybe Schmidtian conception, right? Um, do you do you think that like uh, for like a lefty version, like communitarianism can sometimes fall into this too, where you see one, you're like your your political, social and political sort of place and function as derived or deduced from the the community as being the ultimate like source of good. And and the, and the and the individuals like derive from that. Yeah, and I think there's like some bad strands of of like lefty Marxism. Um, I think even like progressive liberalism that kind of fit into this, you know, where it's like the the arc of history bends towards justice kind of idea, where the the time horizon of like the future conception of this is what a just society is, as dogmatically posited as like the future to be realized, like that can can even slip into this sometimes. Especially if it's embedded in like a in a like a deterministic view of history as like yeah yeah going towards that yeah or or mm-hmm. then the way that it's wielded is like like we need to enact it so that it's realized so therefore what we do in the present yeah. justifies our vision. The obstetric metaphor is called, totally called it right of history. That's exact. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Which I've seen on Twitter yeah, a they, lot of discussion about lately, trying to like bring this back, and I'm like, mm, I'm not a fan. Yeah, ditto. And also, like, it, it's one of the things that irks me the most is like this, like, you know, don't you know you're on the wrong side of history, yes. or don't we want to be on the right side of history? Kind of talk. Yes. It's always like that shouldn't be what matters. <laughs> yeah, and that's like that moralism that I think is part and parcel of this ontotheological orientation. Deleuze refers to it as the dogmatic and moral image of thought that what you have is this this dogmatism also comes with a oftentimes a set of moral principles not only is it the case but therefore you must act in accordance um okay and then with the critical and criteriological i kind of mentioned it earlier but i tend to think of it is being like, okay, yeah, so we don't appeal to the existence of like ineffable other or something like that. But what happens is, is you get something like the party becomes the um, objective, absolved kind of decider of impunity. And, and so I appeal to this actually in my book, um, and I write about this with regards to Sartre, with his criticism of... Um, the the communist party's uh communist russia's invasion of hungary in 1956 and then the 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 french communist party's support of this invasion i kind of map it onto this tendency is part of the reason is that what you get is you get a critique of a, a, a wielding of that which is right versus wrong from an outside position that is itself like forever absolved because they can just continually redraw the boundaries of the actions are right and and wrong Right. So let's take this and put it into current current day issues is there's a, a strain of Zionism that is probably ontotheological. That's maybe like the more religiously motivated, maybe like the, you know, the kind of like uh, this land has been given to us by God. Therefore, we are justified in our actions. And then maybe there's the more secularized version of it, which is maybe the criteriological, which is they can continue to kind of like press the boundaries over what actions are right and wrong because the party is absolved from, you know, being implicated in, in whatever's going on because they kind of see themselves as having a privileged status. And so they can justify what they're doing because they have the determinant, they, they have control over the determinant relations of that which is rational versus unrational.
Yeah, yeah. That latter point seems like it, like because there seems to be like a kind of ontotheological orientation in like the in like the end of history types. Like, there's only one way in which um, communities can be structured, and that's the the, the general liberal democratic order um, with plus capitalism. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's like the only way we can live, and anything else is sort of um, like a savage way. Uh, to live and the criteriological formulation would be more on like the, well, I mean, you know, we've sort of chosen to live in this liberal, liberal democratic way or, you know, quote unquote liberal democratic way. Um, and like, that's what works for us or something. Is that like, mm, and there's yeah. no, yeah, see, I, I struggle with the idea. Cause like, I certainly agree that there's an important, an intimate connection between like moral political orders and the underlying like metaphysical assumptions. Right. Mm. I don't know that there's a straight line between them. Mm. Right. Um, every, every vision of social political order has an underlying metaphysics, but I don't think that the, the former fall out of the latter. Right, so like you start with the metaphysics, and then a particular vision of the way that the social political order should work falls out of it. Right, it's more that like any social political vision has an underlying metaphysical set of assumptions, but it's not a determinative line between them. Right, so I wonder then if we're making these connections between the social political orders, the social political logics, right, and the underlying metaphysical assumptions. Are we making a a one to one like each of the four metaphysical or orientations towards metaphysics? It's connected to one and only one social political order. Is that the idea? Because like I think you're you're totally right to, to say that like look there there seems like there's onto theological kind of metaphysical assumptions on both the right and the left, mm-hmm. and a lot of contemporary social political debates, right? Um, I could I could see how there would be criteriological metaphysical assumptions on both the right and the left too. Um, so it seems like it's it's multi it's like pluralistic. Yeah, and 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 maybe it's maybe it's that like certain political orientations like have onto theological tendencies, and then at times they also have like criteriological and constructivist tendencies, and that they're inconsistent in how it is that they relate to the relationship between thought and being. And maybe that's one of the things that is like part and parcel of the political project per se is that it isn't going to simply embody one of these positions, but that you can kind of use these positions to say, ah, within X political project, you have this tendency towards ontotheology, and then you have these tendencies towards criteriology, and maybe they shift and they move depending on the historical context and situation. Because I don't think that you can... I don't think that the political projects, like you said, th- I don't think that they have like a perfect causal connection to like a metaphysics as like first principles that ground from which, you know, out of which flowers the political project. Like, because I don't even think most political projects are fully aware of the metaphysical excesses that ground the political project. Like those two are being discovered in the process, right? Like people are discovering like, oh shit, I guess... We do, or, or or maybe they're not even discovering, but they're like responding to them in different ways. And then we as critics outside of it are 
acknowledging, oh shit, here are other metaphysical first principles that aren't resolved. I don't think that like the realm of the metaphysical is like this static regime. Maybe it too itself is always kind of um, excessive and, and kind of in a process of becoming, which then which then means that the critical work of looking at the relationship between politics and metaphysics is is really difficult and is really complex. Because not yeah, only good. are the political... That... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that we're especially sensitive to this because like, if you grew up in a very conservative religious environment, you'll, you'll, you'll see people who, when talking about like their faith or their understanding of the relationship with God or meaning in life, talk very ontotheologically, right? And then when you start talking about politics, it's like the most like normie shit, <laughs> right? Mm, like yeah. they don't sound like um, Alistair McIntyre or <laughs> are not let, let's John Milbank. more like, yeah, John Milbank, right? Who's like fully taken his onto theology. Bring back Christendom. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why he sounds so insane, right? <laughs> because he's fully enveloped his social political understanding into his onto theology and nobody does that. No one goes full onto theology, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of the episode. No one goes full onto theology. <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, I like that because then that um, that's helpful for thinking like because it's true that every social political order has an underlying metaphysics. Um, it doesn't have a single one necessarily, and the and the yeah. underlying metaphysics don't have a single social political order which falls out of them, right? But that means we can think about what that under what those underlying metaphysical presuppositions are and try to excavate them, right? And so we have tools now in these four orientations to do some of that work. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, and so in my in my book on Sartre, I kind of say, well, Sartre is very critical of both the ontotheological and the constructivist orientation. The ontotheological is, he's critical of like uh, dogmatic metaphysics, particularly the the work of like, dialectical materialists who center the dialectic of nature right um and then he's also critical of like the constructivist project which is what he calls analytical reason and then i'm like so then that leaves the other two where would we place sartre and his political project is it like generic or is it paradoxical critical and i ultimately say that it's paradoxical critical because he doesn't really engage in the type of um uh of ontological work that I think necessitates Badu's project, which I think really only Badu like fits there. Right? Like like there are there are ways that you can look at other political projects and be like, oh yeah, you know, like it might it might have some sort of I don't know, it might have some sort of uh, resonance with what Badu's doing. Because I think in a lot of ways Badu is also trying to formalize, you know, a way to understand certain political expressions that are common to the ones that Sartre is trying to formalize as well, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so I do think that that's a way to kind of look at like that there are kind of like liberatory political projects that 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 I think I think maybe we could even say that only liberatory projects would fit within like the generic or paradoxical critical. Or at least that would be the, that would be like the the conclusion to draw from Livingston's argument. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. Hmm. Hmm. Well, should we put an ellipsis we on that? 
Fucking hell, we just talked for two and a half hours and I feel like <laughs> I feel like that we're like just scratching the surface and I feel like I, I literally I was like I feel like my brain just went to the gym. So um, Yeah, yeah. We haven't done like um straight up philosophy philosophy like this, philosophy proper in quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um okay, well let's put in a little you know what I might do? I might reach out to some people and say, hey, can you listen to this episode? And then would you maybe be interested to like have a chat about it? Like maybe Liam, right? Maybe we can see if we could get him on to talk about like the Carnap stuff and your your kind of like issue with like the conflation of language and thought. And maybe he can maybe he can kind of chime in. And then maybe we could even reach out to Paul. I haven't talked to the guy in like well, I don't know what year that was. Was that 2017 or something like that? So I haven't talked to him in like six years, but or maybe I we emailed after that. I can't remember. Um, but uh, yeah, would be worth maybe seeing if he could come on and, and listen and have a chat. And maybe he can clarify some things for us. Where is he teaching now? Do you know? Well, he was at New Mexico, wasn't he? But I don't know if he still is. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he and Adrian Johnston were both there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if he still is. But uh, last I heard, that's where he was. So. Okay. Well... Let's unwind a little bit now. Let's breathe out, and hopefully we can talk about something that's a little bit lighter and chill as we uh, go about our day now. It's time for the Sticky Leaves. It's where one of us gets to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So, Troy, can you let us down softly? Yeah, I'll be quick about this since we're going so long over. Um, So I recently watched John Carney's new film, Flora and Son. Have you guys Mm. seen that yet? No, no, I watched the trailer because you told me about it and, you know, we're both Carney fans, so, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, is, is uh, uh, whatchamacallit still your favorite movie? Well, I, I, I wouldn't... Oh, like on the short list? Know, yeah, Sing Street, like that movie, fucking, that movie just gives me life, you know? <laughs> yeah, so the, the new movie, Flora and Son, um, is about an Irish uh, mother who has a teenage son. Um, and they're estranged from his father. Um, and she's sort of, I don't know what's the proper term for it. She's not the most lovable character. She's kind of a malcontent. She's not very likable, especially in the beginning of the movie. Um, and then she decides she, she finds a, a broken guitar in a dumpster and decides to give it to her son for his birthday. Cause she, I guess like forgot to give him a birthday present. Um, mother of the year. And then um, he's not super interested in it, but he does love music and he is into like making beats and making electronic music. Um, and she decides she wants to learn how to play guitar. And so she uh, hires a guitar teacher on the internet who happens to be um, in Los Angeles and he's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> and she like, starts to, you know, kind of fall in like with him and um, learning about music. And then through the process, I don't want to explain the whole plot of the movie or anything, but he starts to, or she starts to, um, not even really. You you expect the movie to be, she falls in love with a with a guitar teacher from Los Angeles, um, and then like learns to love again or something, but it's <laughs> not, it's not at all that kind of like you know hokey uh, love story or whatever. In fact, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character isn't really all the integral to the film at all, even though the trailer would make you think that he is. Um, yeah, and he's, he's like the big star, the right? Yeah. Um, 
I won't say what happens in the movie, but what I appreciate about the movie and love so much about it, and it's true of all of John Carney's films, is that he doesn't think of music as an instrument towards bettering yourself or becoming uh, or like improving your relationship with people. No pun intended, an instrument. Because um, that, that's like all over the place, right? Um, and also it's kind of like a, you know, I don't know. There's a problematic, the problematic notion of like how that can produce like better relationships and stuff. Instead, music is like a, a constituent part of loving others. Like you love others through music, hmm. right? And so when you have music in your life, it becomes the way in which you love others, not just a means towards it, right? And what I love so much about that is that one that's, again, I think just um, an accurate portrayal of, of the love of music in life is that it's like the way we have relationships with people. Like not the only way, but like one way we do, right? We love music together, right? Um, and it also, so it, it's both like a, a good portrayal, I think, of, of music, but also just of like what happens when we lack these ways of loving other people, right? Hmm. Like you think about yeah. why is it important to have music as a prominent thing in your culture? It's like, well, it's one way that we do things with others, that we appreciate <laughs> um, life with other people. And if you lack those things, then you don't really have ways to express love with other people, right? And to live life with other people. And so like, it's so important to have those things in your life and to have like uh, a society that, 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 you know, prioritizes those things and, and funds those things and, makes them available to people when they're young so they're able to like learn how to do these things so they have a way to do this and it's really beautiful how flora and her son bond over love of music in a way that they wouldn't have if not um if not for like the way that uh music ends up just becoming part of their life in ways they couldn't really have explained or predicted right and so there's this kind of like ephemeral quality to it because like a lot of unpredictable things happen that if not had happened, maybe they, the, the characters wouldn't like have this happy ending or whatever. Um, but then also I think it's just kind of true to life in that way that there's contingency at every point, right? And there's a kind of beauty to the fact that these good things can happen, not because they're determined from the beginning, but because, you know, happenstance occurs and, you know, um, big positive providence or whatever um so anyway i love this movie it's really great if you like john carney's other films um uh sing streets or uh once, once right classic one um you'll love this one too i don't think it's quite at the level of sing street or once but it's up there and i think it really takes this theme of of music's importance in in life and in relationships that in a way that I don't think really any other film does. Like it's such a, it's such a good appreciation of art in general, right? Mm. Um, it's not about like having profound realizations about existence and it's not about, <laughs> you know, music making you famous and getting you all the things you ever wanted. Those are all like instrumental understandings of, of art's importance. This is instead thinking about art as, art as like a, a constituent part of the meaning in life. And it's so much more... Um, meaningful to me for that reason. I think it's why people are so affected by John Carney's films because they had this unique theme to them that most of their films, even the films that like ruminate on the importance of art don't seem to have captured this fact about it. 
So yeah, go watch Floor and Son. It's fantastic. Bono's daughter is really good in it. Uh, Eve Hewson, which pains me a bit to say, but <laughs> she's f- fucking hilarious and adorable and so lovable, even though she's not at all likable in the beginning. Yeah. She, she definitely wins you over. Oh, cool. Yeah, I really want to check it out. It's so funny you're talking about like the relationship between like people and, and how music is like constitutive of, of relationality. And it reminds me of in Sing Street, the relationship, not just between the band members and the bandmates, which is amazing. Um, and not just for Cosmo as like the thing that gives him meaning while his world and society are crumbling, but particularly like the relationship between him and his brother that is so yes. beautiful. And like there are all these moments where it's like Cosmo becomes a futurist or like my favorite one is when Cosmo's like starting to like feel these emotions of love for this girl, right? You know, in like his own like, you know, youthful sense. And it's like, he's like, I'm happy, but like I'm sad. And his brother just pulls out the cure and he goes, this is happy, sad, (laughs) you know? And it's like, they're able, (laughs) they're able to like, like, it's kind of like a hey, you wanna you wanna know about how music attests to like the universal experience of like the sadness and the happiness that come together. Well, I too have experienced that, and let's let's listen to this band of people who have also attested to that universe. You know, and it's like it's there's just something so commoning about it um, that it's like there's a universality to it. It's 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 so beautiful, you know. Yeah, that's exactly the the kind of scene I was thinking of, right? Because it's not just that like, here music's gonna gonna like make you feel better when you're sad, right? No, not at all. Even though that's true, right? To some extent, it's like music's gonna like change who you are, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it does. It it literally he starts dressing differently, thinking differently, talking differently. He r- relates to people differently. You know, everything changes. Yeah, like it becomes part of you in an indelible way that mm. forever changes you and continues changing you forever as you you know experience more and more music. And that goes back to the thing we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, right? Where like, it's uncomfortable to be in a place where art can change you. And so oftentimes we, we come at art with a perspective of like, I'm just going to, you know, um, formalize this into, into what I already have in my, you know, my, whatever preconceived notion I already have and then fit it in there and then I'll enjoy it based upon that. But that's just mm. an impoverished notion of art and you don't really get the important part of art, which is that it affects you and changes you, right? And you have to be mm-hmm. open to having that sort of experience with art and to, to think about it and to ruminate on it for it to change you. And that can be scary sometimes, but like that's that's what's beautiful about art. And yeah, and John Carney's films are, you know, they're, they're very um, optimistic about these things. He's not exactly talking about when, you know, um, some of the, the, the negative sides of these things. But um, it does capture this notion of like, the uncomfortable moment when art is changing you, especially like when you're, when you're young and you're going through development. Although what's beautiful about this movie, I think is that Flora and son it's, it's happening between a mother and son and, and largely to the yeah. mother who's already an adult and who already seems formed, right. And developed. And that even she's capable mm. of immense change in part through um, love of music. So yeah, that's, that's, I think what's probably unique about this film that is really great. Although I guess in once it's it happens too, but it happens in the context of like a romantic relationship, so it can feel a little bit more samey with that tradition of of romantic films, right? Right. Which is probably why that film has had the the staying power. I mean, it's become like a, a musical, like a stage musical, and all kinds of stuff because it does just mm-hmm. appeal to so much of like the romantic 
impulse that society is so interested in exploring, or the romantic dynamic that society is so interested in exploring. Right. Yeah. Mo- the mother and son story, I think, is a little bit more unique and probably provides a little more insight for that very reason. Oh, cool. All right. Well, um, your last Sticky Leaves film, Godzilla Minus One, uh, gave us immense joy. Uh, so thank you for that. So uh, we'll definitely have to make sure we uh, check out this one as well. We did watch the trailer after you told me about it. So, um, yeah, I'm keen. I'm super keen. That would be a good double feature. Godzilla minus one and Flora and Son. <laughs> would you just feel like just so uplifted as soon as you walked out? You'd have faith in community and you'd go out and you'd want to start a band. That's what you would go do <laughs> after. Yeah, that's the thing is that uh, in Flora and Son, it's like making beats, which is not what I would think of as a fun time making music. But that says more to <laughs> my yeah. lack of universality or whatever than anything else. No, there you uh, go. But yeah. Both very beautiful films about the triumph of, of of human community and the human spirit and things like that. So yeah, great double feature for that reason. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Um, for those of you that made it this long, uh, congratulations. Um, Longest episode it, yet? I think so. Fucking hell. <laughs> in a long time, at least. Um, so we'll get out of here super quick. If you want to give us a follow on Twitter or X, go ahead. Owls underscore at underscore Don. Same on Insta. You can email us owls at Don Gmail at podcast.com. If you are reincarnated Hegel, please definitely reach out to us. We'd love to um, chat with you about recording an intro for us. And of course you can support us at patreon.com slash owls at Don. You can throw us a few pennies and it really helps us uh, go a long way in producing this madness. Um, but yeah, I think that I've, I've pretty much covered everything, unless there's something I forgot to say. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vodani Amerikanski. Amerikanski.